Trustee Lawrence. Trustee Varney, we have a quorum. Excellent. Um, welcome everyone to the November 17th Finance Committee meeting and I would like to just remind everyone that the uh, proceedings are being recorded and will be posted. Okay, thank you. Um, well, uh, we are running a, started a few minutes late, but I'm sure we will catch up. It's a full agenda, lots of interesting topics. So why don't we start by um, considering the approval of the minutes from the October 21st meeting. Do I have a motion? I move. A second. I have a comment on the minutes. Sure. Well, let's get a second first, okay. then we'll comment. Okay, Mr. Varney. Uh, well, I, as I understand, the purpose of the meeting is to, of the minutes is to let the public know what goes on in these meetings, and there's some Brown Act Im implication to that. But uh, the minutes, as it, as they report what was said by the members of the finance committee, I believe are unclear and, and inadequate because they really do not um, allocate or attribute remarks made by certain board members to certain concepts and concerns. And it's rather just a very uh, vaguely written statement that says there were comments from various finance board members. And I would, I would hope uh, that these minutes could be amended in particular uh, to reflect the comments made by Jim and by Michelle and myself as to the uh, condition of the uh, hospital and our concerns with regard to that. I don't think it really says anything like that. Are you saying in, in thinking in terms of content or attribution or both? Both. Okay. Um. I, I think the philosophy has been to um, not have this be a verbatim uh, recitation of what was said, particularly since we, we do tape it and people have the opportunity to go back, but, but to provide full disclosure. So I guess there's a balance. Uh, I would, I would also say, too, uh, as, as actually uh, the chair just pointed out, uh, one of the things that the board has agreed to do, hence this, these mics in front of us, uh, is that uh, these, all of these uh, meetings now are recorded. And so uh, to the extent that someone is interested in, in uh, getting a deeper flavor of the uh, discussion, uh, uh, the same place where we post the, uh, the minutes, uh, the audio recordings are, are there and, and are easily available for someone to, to listen in on. So uh, trying to do uh, probably, uh, you know, granted there could be some other way that we balance a much more play-by-play -play sort of uh, uh, dialogue of, of, of the discussion versus uh, a more generic synopsis. Maybe, maybe there's some opportunity there. Yeah. Uh, just but at least there is a much more, you know, word-for-word -word, uh, representation in in the audio file. Yeah, two thoughts on that. One, uh, when we, as the Finance Committee, approve the minutes, we are somewhat saying they are accurate and ad adequate, and I can't vote that they are accurate and adequate. And two, um, it, it is um, our responsibility, as it has been reflected in these recent studies as to the new financing programs that might or might not be available to the hospital as trustees to come to meetings prepared and as trustees to uh, do what's best and, and vote knowledgeably and thoroughly and without fear. And um, I think that uh, um, 
it would be helped if uh, and made easier and more uh, given me more confidence if the minutes clearly reflect what were said in particular very clear comments requesting the Toyon report very clear comments with regard to the status of San Leandro and it's continuing losing money and very clear comments from Jim that the uh, the um, facility uh, the Fairmont facility uh, had a great month and had great income and then followed later this month by uh, letters and complaints from staff at that facility that they were overworked it was over uh, over occupied with people uh, the care quality of care was not uh, what they hoped it would be and so I just think all those things need to be tied together so people can see them in one place and don't have to come down here and listen to some recording and try to figure out whose voice it is and Okay, I think Mike wants to respond and, and I'll let him, but uh, what you just said, uh, actually just to, to accurately uh, correct that, uh, I think you were referring to a situation at John George and not at Fairmont. John George, I meant, yeah. yeah. And, and then uh, uh, when you say things being in one place, those, those things weren't things discussed in a meeting, so I don't think they would be reflected in the minutes. Uh, that was actually sort of a separate aside that was broadly discussed in other settings, uh, not necessarily this one. Um, and or any of the other board meetings. So um, I think I understand your point. I'll, I'll let uh, uh, Mike chime in here. Yeah, and you know, perhaps I m might suggest, you know, I think it would be, a, you know, appropriate that, you know, were there comments regarding uh, the minutes, um, you know, to include those as part of the record, um, you know, before, you know, the vote is actually taken. Um, you know, I certainly understand, you know, the issue raised by Trustee Varney and, you know, um, work with the clerk in the preparation of the minutes going forward, um, you know, to make sure that they do, you know, capture the things which are important. And, and typically, you know, the, the protocol has been designed to identify what actions were taken, how those actions arose, and then, uh, you know, the people who were involved in those. Those are the standards that we're trying to meet, but also understanding these other things, we can certainly take a look at that going forward. Okay, um, is there interest from, other, from the other trustees to update or revise the currently presented minutes? Um, I, I'll weigh in. I, I do think Trustee Varney has a point, but what is reflected in the finance minutes seems to me to be the same, <coughs> the same in all our committee minutes and in the board minutes. And so I think the tool, in fact, is a balance of trying to find a little more. Because if you read, if you read the items, they're really a repetition of the agenda. So I can see that they've been cut and paste, so they've moved from the agenda to the minutes, and then there might be a sentence that's put in there. And um, I, I suppose we also have to be mindful that um, Susanna has, in fact, inherited a process that has been here for a long time. So mm -hmm. I, this is no, this is no fault to you at all because I think this has been this has been our practice. But there there really isn't anything in here that uh, attributes something to a board member of of consequence, particularly when they say um, the board raised concerns um, on an issue. There isn't any 
there isn't any clarification of what a concern was. Sure. So I think maybe that there there ought to be a balance of this, and we could just look at it in the future. But I think I think Trustee Varney raises a, a good point. But it's consistent across the board. It's been in our minutes for a long time in this manner. I, I agree too, so there's a balance between like the blow by blow or who said what or sh uh, you know naming names and saying it, but if there were anything because we are charged with when we do something it goes to the full board and they take it. So if there were any kind of uh, comments or uh, issues raised out here that it would be reflected in some way and again agreed that this follows the same format that's been followed, but we need to consider adding a little bit more um, of, the, um, of the flavor of the meeting in as uh, brief way as possible. Okay. Yeah, and I just I, I wouldn't mind adding a little more flavor to the meeting, as Kenny put it. Um, I, I do think, you know, and this is, you know, following um, some comments Trustee Lawrence has made in previous meetings. You know, we, we act as a, you know, we act as a committee, not as individuals. So to the extent that we add more flavor, I think it should be you know, that you know, these concerns were raised. I'm mm -hmm. not sure attributing to one trustee or another is crucial to that. You know, but simply. Oh, okay. Well, that, okay. So, so well, well, I, I think, we'll add, I that, think but that sounds a little, a little different. Adding a little bit more, I think adding a little bit more flavor, you know, talking about, you know, here, you know, a little bit more of the back and forth perhaps would be useful, but I don't, sure. I'm not sh personally, I'm not sure that we need to attribute it to individual trustees or it, okay. it, 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 you know, it starts to turn into a transcript. Yes, that's what I don't, yeah, I, yeah. I don't think any yeah. of us want that actually. Yeah, so. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll take a stab at this and, and you know, we can bring, we can try it for not just this committee, but others and yeah. you, know, you can give us feedback and, and tell us if it works for you. You know, maybe, maybe what we do well, I have a few ideas. Let me ponder them before I um, say them. But um, but yeah. So let's let's try to expand it for for future purposes. Okay. Duly noted. All right. So let me call <coughs> the question in this case. So, um, all in favor of accepting the minutes as is? Aye. 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 Opposed? Aye. Okay. So, did you catch that? Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. And um, Tony, thank you. So, let us talk about next the um, committee planning and um, this is uh, page nine of your package. I apologize. I'm, I keep working on the font size to get it bigger, but it's just uh, illegible. But if you turn to page nine of your package, and I think the uh, the key issues here are that we're in November, so we're five months into the into the year. Uh, we have no meeting planned in December. And then picking up in uh, January, we want to start getting ready for the budget process. <clears throat> and one of the key um, uh, actions of the Finance Committee is to approve the financial plan. Uh, we can do that in January. We might push it back to uh, February, but uh, it's important that it gets started there so that we can have a target for the budget process. And by and financial plan, you mean the long-range financial the long-range financial plan okay. part of which will be a projection of the next fiscal year right. and that typically becomes um, a target for the budget process and then we initiate that and we come back to the board in uh, April or May and report on whether we think we're able to achieve that target so it's sort of a self-reinforcing cycle okay. um, now there's going to be an action educational session tonight on the uh, the financial model itself I'm going to call it a model 
at this point because it won't be a plan until this board adopts it and certainly mm -hmm. the management team itself really wants to get into the details of it as well. Um, <clears throat> so that is essentially the planning calendar. There'll be some uh, retrospective reviews and some educational sessions planned, but that's the uh, that's really the agenda for the second half of the year. Okay. Now, um, I'm. I think that we probably need more than a single session to approve the financial plan. Yeah. Um, if if memory serves, we really. I mean, the last time we really had a financial plan was when we did was when it was incorporated in the strategic plan in 2012. Yes. Okay. So. Yes. Um, and I think one thing that um, um, is also key to the financial plan is that that is tied very closely to the strategic plan. Correct. So the strategic, the strategic plan informs the financial plan, and the financial plan informs the strategic plan. Yes. So they're kind of going together, mm -hmm. so the coordination with the strategy team is crucial. Absolutely. And I think you're yeah. doing that. <clears throat> and it should but be updated annually yeah. to make sure we're on track. So. Uh, so I think we probably really need at least two yeah. sessions okay. for the strategic, good. for the financial plan. We'll do it both um, in January and February. I think that'd be a good idea. Sure. Okay. Also, I was thinking, you know, there, there's a bunch, we, we try to do education here. And, and I think it is important to do education, you know, get all the committee together and public mm -hmm. and do that. Uh, but uh, I don't think there's anything that would stop us or stop you from, you know, for example, sending you know a report to the committee simply saying, "This is for your information." Mm -hmm. You know, to, yes. and it, we may be able to get more education done in a more efficient manner, both it's, for it's you a, and for us. Yeah, it's a great, uh, great. Uh, now, obviously, we can't have discussion about that, yeah. but you know, there may be things that don't exactly require discussion, yeah. or okay. or less prone to discussion. Good. If that makes sense. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, and then, let's see, I really like these two topics and education topics, the, um, the supplemental reimbursed Medi-Cal waiver, that's all the supplemental revenue, mm -hmm. right? Yes. And then, which, so that's going to include Measure A and all that stuff too, right? Uh, yes. It Should, yes. yes. And then the microeconomics of a, mm -hmm. of a patient. So, you know, when a patient walks into our door, what's the economics of that one person? What does that tell us about our business? Um, other trustee comments? Uh, I, I was just a little confused sure. or actually just needed more information. What What is, David, in, in relationship to developing the financial plan, and as Jim talked about it, it coordinating and dovetailing to the strategic plan, what, what what are you looking at in relationship to timeline? And Jim's asking for two sessions here. So it, it, if, in fact, does the whole board need the two sessions because you've got other people who are going to want to weigh in on this? Mm -hmm. So what are the timelines relative to the development of the strategic plan, how it dovetails into the financial plan, and, and then presenting that to the board? <coughs> and then we have the whole issue that's going on right now with the strategic plan relative to the issues that the overall county county plan and so i'm sure that those kind of things have to kind of dovetail so i just 
maybe you and the staff could work through some mm -hmm. kind of timeline so that we know what's coming, basically. Mm -hmm. So, uh, great point, and that is what we're doing. Uh, okay. So, um, there, we're sort of hampered by the fact that we won't have a meeting in December, not that we're asking for a meeting in December. You can get a meeting uh, in December. And for, 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 for your sanity, probably that's a good thing. Uh, uh, but we are, you know, by, by January, I think uh, this will be a little clearer. We're working with uh, two different partners on uh, the plans, and okay. the strategic plan is a little bit more lengthy this year for us because of some of the stuff we talked about in the joint meeting, which is yeah. we are engaging a, a, a wide swath of stakeholders, uh, including you know partners in the county, partners at the uh, community clinics, and even I believe the alliance, our our, our uh, uh, medical managed care partner, and so so that process is is a lot more robust, uh, but. Uh, to, to the point that David was making, uh, we have been aligning what's happening with this uh, strategic financial plan with this all in a goal effort that will probably land on uh, a good sort of middle point uh, with uh, both of these plans. Um, I should say more the strategic plan around the February-March timeline, and then this one uh, uh, along with that, but probably a little bit ahead uh, because of the information that will be used to sort of feed into that will be a little bit more concrete by that point. We'll land in terms of getting the board's adoption of the strategic plan, uh, probably, it'll probably follow behind, uh, but just immediately behind the financial plan, only because to David's point, we wanna start to uh, work on the budget and some of the final details of, of of uh, coalescing around the strategic plan uh, don't actually, they won't be changing anything at that point. Everything will be sort of locked in and it'll just be a matter of sort of, you know, buttoning it up. Uh, so so they should uh, start to coalesce around the same time, uh, which is about spring of next year. So we'll, we'll be able to give you a sequencing update uh, um, in, in January. And to your point, Michelle, I believe actually, I don't, I don't know how much we'll, we'll want to do this twice uh, with both of these. So uh, it may be a point of discussion for our board, whether you want uh, both of them to be discussed at the full board level or at the committee level, because we don't have a strategic planning committee anymore. That one's going to come in probably multiple iterations to the full board. Do you want it to be maybe one time here and you know, once or twice at the full board, or do you want it to be two times here and two times at the board level too? Seems a bit, you know, over overkill, but you know, we're open to your feedback on it. Well, I suppose it depends on on the, the philosophy relative to, uh, you know, I I know that it is an irritative ir, ir, that word it, it, that word which I've always stumbled on. Um, I, I recognize it's that back and forth process, um, and it not a chicken or the egg issue. Um, so, but we have made a commitment to the board as a whole to make certain that they see and understand the strategic plan. And if, in fact, David sets up a budget that's supporting the strategic plan, in my mind, sometimes it becomes a chicken or the egg. So, you, you. But I, wh why do we wait for a January timeline and you can figure out when that stuff is coming to us and then you can decide whether or not it's two times here. But I, I definitely think the total board needs to be involved in, in understanding what the strategic plan is. Okay, I, I, I think we agree. Uh, perhaps even after today's presentation where you see what the framework is, we've talked about it yes. as a team, uh, you may be comfortable, hopefully, but we'll look to your feedback 
to say that this is enough of a context for you to weigh in on uh, at this level, and then when we actually start to fill it in, again, in lockstep with the strategic plan, that that's, that's a conversation you want to have as a full board. Uh, but we'll, we, can, you know, we can revisit this after you have today's presentation. Let's see, and then, whoop, whoop. Wait, what happened to the uh, BOS calendar, Board of Supervisors calendar? Oh, um, I didn't put it on the, uh, oh. it's, it is in the package. Okay, yes, yes. all right, so well, so page um, 10 of the okay. packet. So we have the um, Board of Supervisors Health Committee meetings, and the next one is on Monday, mm -hmm. November 23rd. And so, are we on the agenda? Is AHS on the agenda for the 23rd? Canceled. I'm, I'm getting the canceled. Friends from the sign. county? It's cut. Yes. Yes. Cut. Canceled. Oh, wait, canceled. Oh, it's canceled. The, oh. the entire meeting is canceled? Oh, oh how delicious. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, I was going to encourage everyone to go to that, but um, you'll be lonely. So, um, I guess the next time is December 14th? Right, but just the BOS, so December 14th. So it may be j j January before we have a normal report out. Okay, so but January we'll have a report out? Yeah. 11th, okay. We'll get an updated. All right. uh, well, um, they're really interesting to go to anyway, even if we're not on the agenda, so I would encourage everyone to go. I'm not kidding, they're, they're really interesting. Okay, um, enough of calendar. Okay. Let Let's us go. move on to how did we do through okay. September? So uh, let me first talk about the agenda. We've got a packed agenda tonight. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about, obviously talk about September, uh, give you an October outlook, but probably spend less time on the financials tonight than normal uh, because we went into them in depth last, last month. Um, Dave will give his report, and then we have three uh, pretty big um, items to um, really educational sessions. The first is um, being presented by Kaufman Hall. We have a team here tonight from Kaufman Hall. They'll be uh, reviewing the um, long-term financial planning model. This is an educational session. It's really an opportunity for you to understand the concepts of a long-term plan and the model that we, uh, we were, uh, we've built. Um, secondly, um, we intend to go live on uh, Alameda Health Partners on uh, January 1st. Uh, there are a couple of contracts that are important to be approved uh, tonight to make that happen. We wanted to give you an update on that, and um, uh, Brenda Taylor is here to make that presentation. And then finally, as part of our Better Two initiative, the, the major uh, initiative on that was a uh, productivity uh, management and sustainability uh, tool for our nursing units here at Highland. And uh, Rache Holman will make that presentation along with uh, Kinsey Rickold. Uh, and then uh, I also want to mention that we're going to be doing a retrospective review of rehab care. I'm anticipating that's going to take some time. So I'm going to be try to try to be fairly focused in the comments so we can get through the agenda and hopefully get done close to 630 because we have an audit committee uh, right afterwards. Okay. Okay. Here's the uh, performance uh, <clears throat> month and year to date. So September reflects the booking of GASB 68, which we talked about last month. That's the big pension adjustments. There's about uh, 2.9 million uh, in there, and it's showing up on the uh, employee benefit line, which is right here. There's the variance, and of course it rolls across year to date. This is really a, a year to date adjustment 
even though it's hitting the month. Um, even without that, we're over budget on expenses by, uh, if you take out the 2.9, we're over budget by 2 million for the month and about 3 million year to date. So there's an expense issue that we're looking at. Um, part of that is this productivity system that's coming in and we are seeing uh, improvements in our productivity over the last month. So I think that'll start, start showing up. Um, but, um, you know, coming back to uh, overall performance, uh, as we sit here today, uh, we're a little behind budget. So we have a EBITDA margin of 2.2, budget's 4.4, so we're about half of where we need to be. Clearly over, over last year, but uh, we have an issue that we have to deal with. Uh, we are looking at um, potential pickups in um, supplemental reimbursement. Um, <clears throat> we found that um, on the uh, fiscal 2015 Medi-Cal waiver, uh, we uh, had been paid about 93, 94 million, but had thought that we would only earn 75 and therefore have to make a payment back. It looks like we're now, actually, we find out we are going to earn about 91 or 92, so we'll have to give a couple million back, but not as much. Uh, that would be an income pickup <clears throat> uh, if we had decided to book it. I'm looking at the totality of the revenue cycle right now to see if there's any offsetting uh, entries anywhere. So that's a potential pickup. We, d we do have some um, expense credits coming back from uh, Cardinal in particular where we have um, gone back and um, renegotiated uh, late fees uh, of about 400000 that's going to come off. So that will be a pickup on expenses. And we understand we're going to pick up about a million dollars on the uh, pharmacy 340B program. So we, we have some, some good things happening that are going to offset some of these negative variances. But there, there are underlying trends that, can, that you know, require constant, constant attention, and we're, we're continuing to work on those. Okay. So, um, yeah. Are, are you going to delve more into the P&L, or is that? <clears throat> so uh, I have, I have comments on business units, but this is probably the appropriate time. Oh, okay. Um, so, and I think. Tony, did you have no. some comments? Right, there? you go ahead. Okay, thanks. So I, I guess, yeah, I, I think um, you know, as I kind of look at the um, look at the P and L, um, I, I sort of picking up the same things. The things that sh I guess a couple things strike me. One is that we're behind both on revenue and even extra pension adjustment. We're behind on expenses. Mm -hmm. um, the one place that's you know, one, pla one place that's helping us a lot both, you know, month and year to date is supplemental revenue, which, I mean, I'll, I'll take help wherever I can get it, but that's probably mm -hmm. not where <clears throat> I'd prefer to be getting the help. So, um, you know, so I encourage you to, I mean, I know you, I know you, I know you are, but mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. sort of delve into that, my concern is, is this developing into a permanent trend, you know, into, into an ongoing trend? Yeah. Um, so that's one. And then if I peel away the onion and look at <clears throat> business units, you know, there it seems that, you know, we're, you know, we're well behind in Highland. We're well ahead in John George. And, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to figure, mm -hmm. to read, is that good? Is it bad? Is it just is what it is? Um, you know, again, I'll, I'll take yeah. the good. I'll take the goods, and I hope the bads go away. But yeah. you know, yeah. are there trends developing, or is there something we need to understand better about our business? Yeah. <clears throat> so uh, well, let me talk I, first. I, so they're really not questions; they're more comments. But that's yeah. What's I, on we're, my mind. we're looking at the revenue cycle. The revenue <coughs> yield is actually pretty close on an adjusted patient day basis, uh, but the, but clearly there's additional opportunities. So one of the things I'm doing is tracking the amount of cash we collect 
to the amount of net revenue we're booking. And there's, there's kind of two ways of looking at it. One is sort of the balance sheet approach, which is what are your receivables worth? The other is how much should you be collecting based on your revenue? And I think there's still a gap. And I got asked this last time I was in front of the county health committee. I said, are you still losing money? And I, I sort of hedged, but the, the real answer is we, we are not capturing 100% of what we can. And there's some, some big areas that's complicated. We're still working on it. Uh, certainly there's opportunity to improve charge capture, professional billing. Uh, the authorization process within the system is uh, still not where it needs to be. So we're, we're, we're losing available funds, and we're, but we're continuing to work. Okay. Uh, Trustee Varney. Uh, just a couple of questions, and I, I think this is an appropriate time to ask them. As you look, as we look at your reports, or I look at your reports, I have a hard time distinguishing between income improvement and profit. And in particular, as tab three of today's report, you say that uh, uh, we picked up a budgeted profit of $2.6 million. And I'm not sure the, the use of the word profit is correct. I think it's probably more improved operating income position or a income uh, uh, a lift in income, but I don't believe it's profit because there really isn't any profit. I don't think that's the right term. Um, okay. Yeah, in, in not-for-profits, it's common not to use the word uh, profit, but uh, essentially I, I would equate profit to be the same as income, but different from, say, example, revenue. Uh, people do. Well, but, but I think that, that uh, touches on a different subject, and maybe we can cover that later this evening. But mm -hmm. I do believe there's a need for a discussion and a, maybe some resolution of how we handle Measure A funds, mm -hmm. if we consider them income or if we consider them a, some kind of a supplement that uh, is not income. And as I notice uh, reports going back, well, going back a year, that uh, uh, we seem to always show the money from Measure A as income, as if that was money we earned from operations. And in fact, it's really not money earned from operations. And if you were to remove that from the category of, of income, I think it would give a better indication of what our actual profit and loss situation is. And I believe as we move into a, a, a very difficult situation with cash flow and with uh, this now the pension plan issues and the still growing pains with some of the facilities, I think it would be good to clearly set forth what is actual income from the operation mm -hmm. versus monies we receive from outside sources. Because um, I think sometimes when we show the money from outside sources as income, people get the impression that, we, gee, we only lost uh, $21 million or $53 million when if you move out the 99 million that we really didn't earn, it's coming in as a measure A, we lost 140 million dollars. And so it gives the wrong impression as to the uh, uh, ability of this hospital system to be viable mm -hmm. on its own. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that has an overlapping effect on lots of things like the willingness of people uh, to be more considerate of our needs for cooperation as far as salary our need for cooperation with regard to purchasing equipment or services. And because people see that we aren't losing that much money and they don't really see what's going to happen if they lose this facility because they really believe that it won't be lost because it's, mm -hmm. it's only $40 million upside down when it's really, you took out Measure A, and I know Measure A was approved, but mm -hmm. when you start showing it as income, I think it gives a wrong impression. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand your point. <clears throat> um, the, the reason we classify it as, as revenue and therefore income 
uh, is to be consistent with the um, GAAP financial statements. But we do other reporting. For, so, for example, we do the business unit reporting, uh, and we can look at each entity without Measure A because uh, what we're doing is um, recording the Measure A and the support cost line, and then we can go down and look at each of the entities mm -hmm. and say, well, what is the true performance of those yeah. organizations? And yeah. I, I agree that that is an important, uh, important way to do it. In fact, um, uh, this report, the heat map, when we look at um, this line, operating income, that is actually without... Um, the um, Measure A money. So if we look across here, this would be the uh, true, this is, this is the variance to um, operating income, but it's, uh, it gives you an idea of how we're doing. We could also look at it in terms of actual you know, profit or loss uh, without, our, without Measure A. Right. I'm also concerned with the psychology of reporting something as profit. Mm -hmm. Because I, as you would tend to read this uh, agenda packet, when you see the word profit, it tends to make you feel that things are okay. And uh, you then do not put as much weight on some of the other information that's in this report, which would indicate we have a significant negative network and it's going to affect our ability to find outside financing. Right. And I just wonder again, by reporting that item as profit in somewhat of a positive way, mm -hmm. you are not drawing appropriate attention to the financial issues which are not positive. Mm -hmm. Well, there's no question that this organization is facing challenges, and I think that'll uh, be borne out in the discussion on uh, the financial plan when we look at some of the factors. And, and there's more to come on that, so I, I don't disagree with you. Um, yes. And if I could, um, I share Trustee Varney's concerns. <laughs> Um, you know, and now I understand that from a you know from a gap reporting perspective, and, and actually, if we look at the P and L mm -hmm. statement, you know, I mean, all of the supplemental Revenues, Measure A, waiver, all that, are you know they're they're clearly segregated, um, but I also worry that. I mean, there's a few things. I mean, one is they're there. I mean, all those programs are there to help us achieve a you know a certain level of profitability and be viable. Um, mm -hmm. But, however, having said that, I do think it might be useful to for us to look at the business on a. Um, you know, from a management reporting perspective, on a, on a pre, you know, to look at uh, income pre uh, supplements, pre support. Uh, now, right. my sense is is that this is a not uncommon situation among safety net hospitals. Mm -hmm. It's very common. Mm -hmm. It I, I, probably would be considered an impossible miracle for a safety net hospital to actually be able to turn a operating profit on its own. Um, although that would be, it would be interesting to compare ourselves at some point to other safety net hospitals is to see how we are doing. Um, right. But, um, but, I, but I do think it would all probably also enhance, you know, focus on our true operating bottom line. If we were to, mm -hmm. you know, do some management reporting X that might be worth taking a look at. So, does that make sense? Uh, a little bit. I, I have to confess, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a little perplexed. Um, uh, I don't want to spend. Let me unperplex you. <laughs> yeah, uh, please. Uh, I don't want to spend. I, I don't want to belabor it too much because I know we do yeah. have a, a really packed agenda. But uh, you, you did just make the point, which I agree with, that uh, on the financial statements that um, the the uh, net, you know, the patient 
services revenues are segregated from yeah. the uh, supplemental revenue, and then they all do roll into the net operating revenue, which yeah. is you know standard uh, a way of reporting this. Yeah. Um, I guess I don't uh, I don't understand then whether you are you saying that you you would prefer that this wasn't reflected, or you want it to be reflected, but you want all the subsequent analysis to be done absent it? Because I, th I think that would uh, I think he's be suggesting that we treat do. it as a uh, non-operating revenue, sort of below the operating income line, which is which is well, one possible treatment. Yeah. What what I don't want to do is um you know, you know we, we we should always you know we should be clear that when we we have gap reporting when we have non-gap reporting, right? Our, our job is not to change. Is, is, is not to adopt non-GAAP reporting. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe the thing to do, um, I mean, we're sort of waving hands and talking in words and all uh -huh. this stuff, um, and whistling, is to, um, you, you know, and maybe this is something that, David, I think you, you're following what I'm talking about, mm -hmm. is maybe, yeah. you know, management can sort of look at a different formulation and I think when you see it, you may it may make more sense. It, 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 that's probably true, yeah. and I, I agree with that. But then, do you? I, when I do see it, what yeah. I'm trying to figure out is, do you want the management reporting? Because I understand non-GAAP for management reporting yeah. and for uh, operational yeah. uh, uh, um, uh, activities. Do you want that then to be the basis for um, which you get reporting? Maybe, maybe we just do. Maybe we do like an, a you know startup. Maybe, maybe we consider consider an ad hoc. You know, like here's how it looks. You know, here's how our PL looks excluding. Yeah, I mean, we'd want to do, know, we'd some, do some, some education and supplemental support. I, I'd revenues. want to look at um, other um, yeah. DPHs and see what, how they report it. Yeah. And, and you know and, what? You know, we want to, because we want to be consistent. Yeah. Too. And, and you know what? Well, I, I feel like most I, of them do report the way in which we are reporting. Yeah, so right, right. I, I think a perfect time to do that is in this January meeting where we're going to actually talk about supplemental revenue. Exactly. So yeah. I think yeah. that we could say, I think that would be yeah. a perfect time to. Play around and experiment a little bit yeah. with um, with that. Okay, and I just be very. I, I would be somewhat sensitive to to making a case that might uh, not because these are. I mean, these sure. are publicly reported numbers, so I don't want people to walk away with a with a uh, misrepresentation of what what is our right. true story, right. which includes obviously supplemental right. funding sources, both internally for internal audience as well as uh, external audiences. So, sure. so yeah. I don't want. I mean, I'm sensitive to the the, the, the comments around uh, whether we represent, you know, or the language that we use to talk about revenue and yeah. and uh, um, uh, profit and things like that. Uh, I'm sensitive to that, and I, I I understand that, but I I would be a little bit more concerned about any sort of creative way of. Uh, displaying that that didn't caveat that this was this versus that, and yeah. that might get lost on other audiences and might inadvertently send the wrong message. I completely agree okay. and understand, which okay. is probably so. Therefore, probably doing it in an education session that's not related. Yeah, I think, to I think this requires some discussion. Yeah. So. Um, okay. But yeah. Point taken. So. Right. Thanks. Um, point taken. Okay. Thank you. Uh, okay. Let me cover the heat map real quick. So um, this is September year to date. So this is now turned a little red. That's reflecting the fact that we're below budget. That's year to date performance for the system. Uh, you can see we've got some nice greens under Fairmont Behavioral Health and Dow Alameda Hospital. Uh, the the big red is uh, San Leandro uh, Ambulatory, and then to some extent um, Highland Hospital. In terms of um, Volume indicators were green here, but sort of turning, turning pink, a little bit of light green. <laughs> and then revenue yield is uh, there's a couple pinks, but but really pretty, 
strong green across, including here. And then uh, expense is uh, a little pink. There's some positive variances there, positive variances there, and some here. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's how we're doing it at a very high level from the system. Uh, David, with when you put in Gatsby 8, 8 68. 60? 68. 68. 68. Um, it, how do you, do you keep that in one place in the budget, or do you have to distribute that to where the employees are? Um, you distribute to where the employees are, and it's primarily at Highland under benefits. Okay. So do, does the performance relate to any of that? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the red. If, if you look at previous right month. Here. yeah. Okay. So previous month right versus now a different yeah. recording, recording yes. system. Yeah. This, was, this part was better. This is now, particularly the compensation ratio is um, pink. I think it was green before. Yeah. And it's pink because of GASB 68. So so that isn't a change in performance necessarily, but in a change in how you had to report. Yes. Okay. And yeah. and see, I think that's an important factor. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, do we have a understanding of why behavioral health is doing so well? Because this has been a consistent trend now for three months. Financially, um, why are um, they're packed, number one, so volumes are quite high. They're always as you can packed. See. <laughs> but um, as we've refined our um, revenue recognition, uh -huh. uh, they're doing better. We've also improved contracts, particularly with Kaiser mm. there, so they're doing very well on revenue, and their expenses are pretty much in line or favorable. So all those three things, kind of, you can really just kind of multiply these together okay. to produce this result. Okay, so... I mean, if I look at if I look at the straight numbers, it looks like their expenses are pretty much on target. Actually, a little bit better than. Yeah, their expenses are better than budget, and volume budget and is higher. So, and you're on a volume adjusted basis, they're looking pretty good. Yeah. Okay. So it's just everything. Yeah. Um, Everything's working, and they're busy. That's Admissions are up, like the stays down. They're cranking people through the ED. Mm. They're busy. Uh, I don't know if guys here you might want to comment. But no. the, um, the the Gatsby again, for me, distorts the the perspective. So I just need to hear from you. Are there any concerns from any of them that they have gone down and it's not an accounting issue? <coughs> um, yeah, we we have a lot of variances to budget that we're looking at. We have an active uh, process to look at these variances every month and. Um, Anything here that we need to be aware of, Dave? Uh, I, I don't think I would, I would call out at this point. I mean, we continue to look at ambulatory. Uh, it's basically pink all the way down. You know, volumes are down. Revenue yields eh, close a little bit, but then the expenses are up. So we're concerned about that. Okay. Thank okay. you. And I was just going to uh, – one, one thing is you're just looking at a, at a, at the, um, at a consolidated basis. Uh, the, uh, you know, Gatsby 68 – is worth about three million dollars year to date. On on expenses, we are um, what six million dollars behind budget. Yes, six yes. million six yes. million dollars behind budget consolidated. Yes. So, even even if you said, even if you took out Gas sixty eight, Gas B sixty eight, we'd still be three million dollars behind budget. Okay. So, it's it's an impact, but it doesn't. But 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 there's still but there's still stuff to work through. Thank you. Okay. That makes it real clear. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Okay. Thank you. I had a question. Uh, with the 
possibility of the staffing ratio changes in behavioral health, will that see like more registry or will we see a different trend next month in terms of the green um, heat map for behavioral um, health? You know, I'm, I'm not close enough to that to give you an answer. I can, I can ask um, Guy. Is anybody here? Kenzie? So the staffing ratio is going to be changing at uh, behavioral health mm -hmm. because of, you know, yep. the patient volume. So will that yeah. trend be, mm. you know, different? Um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure it will. I'm sorry it wasn't uh, or, in the or, loop or on the that. use of registry, do we mm -hmm. see okay. that, that increasing? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, let's see. So first quarter business unit highlights. So these are by business <coughs> units. I think we really just kind of talked about all these, so. Uh, unless there's any other questions, I'd like to kind of move on to uh, the rest of the agenda. Um, this is in your package. This is the benchmark report. We continue to update this and provide it to the county on a monthly basis. Um, don't try to read that. It's too, okay. And then here's the balance sheet. Now, the balance sheet uh, has changed significantly due to GASB 68. So now the net position, which is sort of the fund balance, is negative by $312 million. Now, um, so that has a couple effects. Number, uh, obviously, that's that's very negative. Um, it, it doesn't affect our ongoing operations because of the relationship with the county. But what it does do is affect our ability to enter into risk-based managed care contracts capitation because those types of agreements have uh, financial requirements that are required before you can accept risk called uh, tangible net equity, uh, where this number has to be positive, not negative. Uh, the current ratio, and so uh, one of the things that we'd really like to do is enter into these kinds of contracts. This is a limiting factor in our financial model, and so as we develop our strategic plan, uh, we're going to have to find a way to deal with this. Okay. But wouldn't every hospital system have have this have a similar kind of problem? Because I mean, this this change is driven by an application yes. of an accounting standard. And, you know, yeah. we're not unique in this. Yeah, but only about half of this is the accounting. The rest of it is the accumulated deficits. Um, okay. Well, then, so, so then that was and, always and, a problem. And many organizations have, you know, sufficient uh, equity built up over time to right. withstand that and still meet okay. the test. So All right. I'm just pointing out that this is this yeah. is an issue that we're going to have to deal with. It's really a long-term issue, not a not an immediate issue. Um, days in the yard continue to improve. They're just under 80. Uh, we'd like to get them down to 60. Uh, current ratio is actually at two, so that's uh, pretty good. Uh, and then uh, days in AP are at 45, which is about where they should be. So that's the balance sheet. Okay. It's not the, is Dave here? He was here, okay. I'll give you a report on that. Okay. Yeah. For the audience, my question was about CIP, construction and process. And um, uh, Mr. Cox will get back to us on that. Okay. Um, okay, here's where we are on the cash forecast. So we actually have an improved forecast. I mentioned the um, that Medi-Cal Medi waiver issue 
um, where we thought we'd have to pay some money back, but we're now we've now kind of pushed it out. It may not happen at all, but we've pushed it out to this this neighborhood. Uh, so that's improved the, uh, you might recall the prior forecast, we were bumping up against this line in January and February. That's no longer going to happen, and probably this, uh, if things go as they plan, we'll, we could potentially be down in this area at uh, June 30th. And that would change the rest of this forecast as well. But right now we're in compliance, and we continue to update the forecast. Um, and this is uh, cash collections. This is the green is how we're doing uh, this year, this is per workday, okay, so about, you know, averaging about 1.4, 1.5 uh, in November. You can see it's pretty consistent with where we were last year. The red is last year, uh, and we'd really like to get this up to, you know, 1.5 steadily, but as I mentioned, we have some remaining barriers that are, you know, they're hard to, they're hard to get. It's hard to get the last amount of money mm -hmm. out of the system, but... Uh, we know where they are, and we're working on it. Um, is the getting, are the last barriers, does, I mean, does the application of money or people? It's really, um, um, it's partly systems, it's partly processes, it's, it's communication between departments, it's lots of, lots stuff. of hard stuff, yeah, ingrained practices that have been there for years. So, okay. Yeah, but it's, it's there to be had, but we need to, we need to do it. Okay. Um, and then this is the uh, report on better to performance improvement. And we actually had a meeting with the team today, and we're now forecasting that uh, when this program ends, that number will be about 14.4 million, which is annualized savings. And you'll hear about the biggest piece of it tonight, which is this one. And then in January, uh, we're going to come back with a, um, <clears throat> a full report on uh, all the signed off savings. and talk about where we go from there, okay? How do you celebrate capturing $14 million of savings? Um, you know, um, there's a lot of hard work from the entire team. Um, everybody's going to be thanked for it. And, and uh, you know, frankly, in, in most organizations, uh, there would be a management incentive plan. And the people who did this would be recognized, and that's that's. I know that the board has thought about that in the past mm -hmm. and didn't feel comfortable with it. And um, um, you know, I think at some point, in my personal opinion, uh, this organization should consider implementing a management incentive plan because that's one of the big ways to thank people for doing hard work. Okay, thank you. Okay. Hope I didn't step out of turn there. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so for the CIO report, I, I brought a report to you today to talk a little bit about the, just the complexity and the situation that we're currently in as we look towards moving towards an integrated uh, electronic health record across the continuum of care. And so the report today was focusing on that, um, that unsatisfactory best of breed that we're currently in, which would be about the state of the industry in the early 90s. Uh, of healthcare was in this best of breed approach where the systems uh, for each department, you pick the best system in each department and then you tried to make them all talk to each other. And so I got a diagram that tries to uh, show that here. This is our current <laughs> existing environment. This is, this is real. I, I uh, like the car that stopped and went. That was, that was good. <laughs> oh, oh, that hurt. 
so, so the intent of this is for you to see where, where we do have, um, in our current environment, what we decided in 2011 was go to this approach of what would get us to what I'm going to call an interfaced electronic health record instead of an integrated electronic health record. Because each one of those lines indicates information being passed between an application. The boxes are all the various applications that we have within the system. And the lines indicate data being moved around. And so that doesn't uh, look like that. If you look at Cerner or Epic, uh, there aren't the number of lines that exist between there with what they have. Uh, the integration happens because, uh, like at the top where you see all Sorian clinicals, that all of that is within that box. And to go back to this screen a little bit, um, you'll see it in the San Leandro and the, in the Alameda boxes. This, this, the intent of this line was to, sh or this chart was to show uh, all of the applications in use at the various systems we have, at the various acute care hospitals as, we, as I've described it, and where we have any points of integration or likeness across those. And you can see there's only three uh, where we have that. Um, yeah, three. The, the PIXIS system, which we have at both High, at all of Highland, Alameda, and San Leandro, albeit three different PIXIS systems, none of which talk to each other, but at least it's one vendor across all three systems. And the ECHO system, which does our medical staff office credentialing, we have the same system, yet it's three separate systems across the three organizations to manage those three different medical staffs. So it, it's not really a point of integration, but at least it's a point of commonality that we don't have anywhere else. Uh, besides using Quest Labs both at San Leandro and through our ambulatory system. Not that they talk to each other, but it's the one place we send that information comes back to it. You'll, you'll see the Meditech boxes off of Alameda and San Leandro because that is more of that integrated system in the Meditech that we have in place. Albeit all ver old versions of Meditech and not integrated to anything else, it, the, the lab, the pharmacy, radiology, and pathology in those are part of that same system. So it's more integrated than, than what this looks like that doesn't have all those lines between them. So the, I think this graph alone demonstrates the, the nature of our current environment and the complexity. Uh, to answer the question of does this make it more expensive for us, I, I think clearly it does because uh, I have people that have to manage each one of those lines. Uh, so a team, I actually have a team called our integration team which manages all those interfaces uh, through the box that says Cerner Open Link. That's really the engine that moves all that data around to all those various systems. And each time we want to bring on a new system, a new interface has to be put together. Interfaces are about $20,000 each, so each one of those lines looks like about $20,000 uh, to make it happen into the Cerner Open Link box and another ten dollars to $15,000 on the other end to the other box because that other vendor charges us for those as well. So it's, it's expensive one to maintain. Any changes in either of those systems means we got to update those interfaces and that change. Uh, so if a change happens in laboratory that doesn't that, that means we need to send a new piece of data. We've got to upgrade that interface. It's not the same full cost of 20000 but someone has to go in and manage that change and make the changes, test it, move mm -hmm. it into production. So it's effort. Um, I say this knowing that the answer is no, but um, I assume that all the data moves seamlessly because it's computers making it all work and, and that everything works real smooth. Uh, generally, I'm going to say yes, because really? I'm millions of transactions happen on a daily, ba uh -huh. on a daily basis. Millions mm -hmm. of transactions occur. Uh, so it, when a person gets admitted that into the Highland campus, uh, that admission goes to the laboratory, goes to the radiology, goes mm -hmm. to, the, to the pharmacy, uh, goes to the surgery system, goes to the ED system. All of those go kind of get passed out everywhere, consumed, sent back. Yeah. I send it. Did you get it? Yes, I got it. Okay. Did you have any problems? No, I didn't. Okay, you got it. And then it gets processed on that end. So millions okay. of transactions happen on a daily basis. 
relatively smoothly uh, with, without consequence mm -hmm. um, and, and move. Okay. Until well, something changes. I'm surprised. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's a lot of our, a lot of the testing we do is when a new version of WellSauce comes in in the ED, we have to test all of those interfaces again to make sure nothing mm -hmm. broke, mm -hmm. uh, to make sure all the transaction happens back and forth. And so we do extensive testing on those. Uh, ICD-10 required us to do testing on anything in that that passed along a piece of data that looked like a diagnosis, a previous ICD-9 code. Every single interface that carried that piece of data was tested to ensure that the data passed appropriately, was consumed appropriately, and didn't cause any errors. So a lot of time is spent on testing just to make sure each one of those lines don't break. Okay. Nevertheless, I'm assuming you're showing this to us not because you think it's a great, great thing, but you want to get a yeah. nice integrated system. Yes. This is okay. what a non-integrated system looks like. This is an interface system. Okay. Uh, dealing with all of those separate modules on the outside, because each one of those is, uh, and, and the reason I called it an unsatisfactory best of breed is because it's not best of breed. Uh, they are individual modules that, that are probably not the best of breed for their particular case. Now, WellSoft in the ED is a particular best of breed. Uh, it is, is specific to the ED. It, it serves their workflow functions extremely well. Um, it just doesn't integrate well with anything else. It interfaces in a way that is unsatisfactory. Uh, okay. so, so one of the things we've done is create an, an electronic health record that does capture the majority of the information we need across the continuum electronically. So we capture it. The difficulty is how do you get to it? Mm -hmm. So in the ED, they have the ability to go out and look at any data that exists in NextGen that comes from our ambulatory clinics. They have the ability to go into Sorian and see anything that happens in an inpatient setting. They just don't do it because it's too hard in the workflow to see the numbers of patients they see on a daily basis, the amount of time it takes to go through that process to maybe find a piece of information that's helpful is unwieldy. Uh, and so while we have electronic records, we don't have a good integrated electronic record that fits into the workflow of our conditions to, to get their work done effectively. So in that example, patient care potentially suffers. Uh, patient care potentially suffers. We, we, we may not know something that we know, mm -hmm. right? Because the ED finds out something that may not get transferred well to the inpatient setting, may not get transferred well to the outpatient setting if the patient goes back to see their primary care provider. It right. may, it may not. It, it's, it's optional uh, for the provider on whether they go through those extra steps to find out that information. So the integrated health record makes that data available everywhere, eliminating the majority of those lines. Um, and the same in this way on our previous screen uh, makes all those lines not meet in the middle with the, the facilities, Highland, Alameda, and San Leandro on the outside of the circle as, as to the inside of their circles because all the applications would be the same across all locations. So the data passes seamlessly uh, throughout the continuum of care. But to do that, it requires, among other things, the application of significant amounts of money, time, and changing the ways that most people do their business on a daily basis. Uh, not, not as much as how people do their business as you would think. Okay. Uh, well, well, it is the case. So, so here, the people in the ED are still going to continue to use their ED system. There is a change management function in there that changes the system that they use and the education will have to go through to educate them on, on how to use the new system. Mm -hmm. But the information comes to them more seamlessly than it does in this current environment. It doesn't come to them at all. They have to go out and find it okay. in doing that. Hmm. So there is significant change management, though. I don't, I'm not going to minimize right. the amount of change the organization is going to go through to, to make this conversion just, that we're proposing. I was going to say, having just uh, yeah. led an EHR conversion, uh, there is a significant amount of change management. And I think, you know, uh, so, so Dave, in a global sense, is, is right. I mean, people will still 
do say the same generic function in terms of going mm -hmm. in to enter information and, and to retrieve that information, mm -hmm. but the manner in which they do that uh, via the solution or the software that you're using changes a lot. Mm -hmm. And so that actually, that's the piece of the change management that is uh, yeah. significant for all the different players when you're looking at how to, where that information is housed, what it means, because mm -hmm. now under all these various different systems, uh, we, we may have good integration, um, mm -hmm. uh, but sort of overlaying this as an analytics effort to make sure that something that's represented as a visit in one place is the same type of visit in another place. So, so when we try to query all this to make some informed decisions about what's actually happening in the organization, mm -hmm. that it's actually accurate based off of uh, uh, the information that's there. So, so when you convert everything over, there's a lot of uh, purposeful um, um, uh, structuring and design around making sure that all those things do feed into you being able to take advantage of all the mm -hmm. the integration that a integrated solution provides uh, mm -hmm. that you don't necessarily have in a interface solution as well. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a very important point, I guess. It, it absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, to David's earlier point about our ability to, to uh, um, you know, take capitation and risk, a lot of it uh, is not just uh, uh, based off of our ability to make intelligent uh, 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 queries around what's actually happening in the organization on a patient level and on a provider level. Uh, that's a big part of it. But then our ability to actually influence that and streamline some of the things that we're doing in it and pull waste out of the organization is, <coughs> is uh, hinged on us being able to eliminate a lot of these different, uh, uh, in some cases what people say is non-value added effort that we have to do just based off of the environment that we operate in. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. It's like it, it is value added because it makes it work. But you correct. But in a in a more perfect world, you wouldn't need that effort at all. Correct. Right. So there you go. Um, so in, in the integrated environment, you yeah. don't need that effort because the data right. is there and available to you. You don't have to go seek it. Right. Uh, going through extra steps, extra logins, new screens to get at that piece of information. Right. And you don't need to have people floating all over the organization make, you know, maintaining systems and making sure that everything does flow somewhat right. seamlessly. Opening uh, up five different applications yeah. to, to provide care to one patient. You know, right. you can just do it all in one system. So, okay. So I did want to come back on, on the implications of this, because as we look between now and our and our plan for how we do get to that single integrated record, which I expect to happen as we've talked over the next uh, eight months at this point, by June 30, we have a plan in place for that, uh, and, and talk about the process we're going to do that. I expect to bring that back to the January Finance Committee to talk about what's the plan mm -hmm. uh, for making uh, going through that next set and, and set the parameters by which we'll be making those decisions about what we do, along with the financial planning and strategic planning, because it fits into all of that. Significant financial investment, somewhere between 100 and 300 million dollars. How does that fit into a plan? Mm -hmm. How do we do that? Will be the discussions that will continue on. Um, but there are some current implications of this. So, uh, our current <coughs> needs are in the ambulatory se section. Uh, looking at our specialty clinics here at at Highland Hospital, uh, currently on paper, not in the not using next gen. We plan to move forward with that because from the time horizon of where we're at and the impact of patient care uh, being. Being on the paper record, continuing in that way is detrimental to our patients and the care they're receiving. Mm -hmm. So we're moving forward with next gen in the in the ambulatory setting. Um, there are some trade-offs to that uh, as we look at some future advantages. If we select Cerner, those licenses convert over. Uh, we met with next gen today and, and are being they're being very gracious to us in, in defining how we define a license. Uh, because at our Highland Specialty Clinics, we have a lot of part-time providers uh, that are here one day a week 
or two days a month, uh, they'll, they'll provide care here. And so in the traditional settings, that would be a full license. Mm -hmm. uh, so $5,000 per provider. And in, in their case, they're giving us some multiple provider licenses for physicians that see, that use less than one FTE of work. Right, they're here one day a week, that's, that's not a full-time provider. Mm -hmm. And so they're working with us on that. So I think there's some, some real good work happening in ambulatory that is to our advantage to continue that work. Uh, in the operating rooms, uh, sig significant need at all three of the acute care hospitals in, this, <coughs> in the operating rooms to help them be more efficient in their care. A and so we're looking at what can we do now with our existing systems because of the, of the three systems we're looking at, the new Meditech, the, the Cerner, and the Epic, all three of them have operating room systems that are integrated into the system. So if we made a significant investment in operating rooms right now, that money would be um, sunk cost in our future because that system would be replaced by our new integrated vendor that we're gonna select. And so we're looking to see what we can do on a short-term basis that minimizes implementation cost, but yet maximizes the value out of that implementation and making those on a case-by-case -case basis to see where it makes sense. Um, so those are, those are detailed decisions that we're looking at. Uh, in the operating room, we think there's significant financial return on that investment, uh, and, and we're looking into the details to see how do we scope that out to make the most sense and get the most out of the minimal investment. But you're moving forward with ambulatory. Uh, we are moving forward with ambulatory because we think that's a clear winner uh, to get that done. Didn't we already have NextGen? We do. We at? already own NextGen. It's already implemented at <coughs> all of the freestanding centers. It's implemented at uh, uh, Adult General Medicine and, and Same Day Clinic here at Highland. So, so we we're continuing continuing to roll out to the specialty clinics oh, okay. here at Highland, where it's not where today they're paper based. Um, and how are you? What are how are you, you know, making sure that the operators are involved in the you know, in the decision and the implementation, so. Yeah, so the, the key stakeholders are involved in this decision-making process. The ambulatory Steering Committee, uh, the Ambulatory Ops Committee serves as the IS Steering Committee and, and drives the ambulatory decisions that we're making. Mm -hmm. In the operating rooms, we're meeting with the, the leaders, uh, physician leaders of the operating rooms and the management leadership within the operating rooms to make sure we're addressing their business needs uh, mm -hmm. and clinical needs to serve those patients in a way that the system support them, but yet we're not throwing a whole bunch of money down the drain because of what we're working on. Mm -hmm. So we're working with the business units on each of these decisions. Jeffrey, what about all the, the other uh, ancillary programs that work with us through county contracts, you know, or county agreements? And uh, is the county on on this system as well or no? No. Are they intending to? I mean, what what is your, what's a conversation to broker? Because I, I think at some point, Yeah, um, we've started those discussions uh, around what does it look like for the rest of the clinical providers within the county, county-based services that are not part of AHS, that we do want to get into that integrated record, and how might we do that? Um, we're talking as well with CHCN, the Cl Community Health Clinic Network, on how might they work with us more closely on how we do this better than we do it today. Uh, while we're working on the on the e-consult so they can their primary care providers can talk to our specialist about patients without actually seeing the patient, uh, to see if we can e improve access and expedite care. Uh, we're working on that same type of integration as we move forward. How do we work with them more closely and making sure we've got good information flow for the patients? What that looks like exactly has not been determined yet. Uh, and the same with the county. As far as you, you make 
they're part of the conversation. Uh, and, and lastly, bed management is really a, a function here at Highland uh, to look at how do we just manage our beds, right? There are systems available, um, again, third-party independent systems that help manage how when a patient leaves a room to notify EVS so the room can be cleaned more quickly and turned over so the room's available faster. And, and those systems are, are available today and help just with that management of bed throughput. Uh, we don't have a system in place today to do that. We use an email chain and notification and phone calls to get that done. We, we don't have an autom automated approach to do it. And so we're looking at can a bed management system in the same way come back, provide a return on investment for the time frame of which it would be in place before an integrated system would be put in place that, that it makes it a positive return on that investment. And so it's not total sunk cost, it's an investment that gets a return. And we think there's, we think there's real advantage to that and, and potential in that area as well. So what's your, what's your thought process relative to prioritizing the approach that you take? What, how, how do you sort through, and why, why I'm asking that question is because the needs, the technical needs of an institution like ours is so large and so complex, and the, the desire to be a good service provider um, is, is always tough. So how do you set up the priority? What, what, what is your process for determining, I'm sorry I can't get to bed management, this year, it'll be two years down the road versus we're going to move forward with ambulatory. How, how does that process work? Yeah, we're still developing that governance structure in the way we do that. Today, it's been done on an individual project ROI basis, uh, project by project, and the individuals involved, and is capital dollars available? There's not been a good governance structure in place, and so we're working with Dave and the, and the capital committee on how do we work towards that prioritization of projects uh, and, and, and trade-offs, right? Because we have uh, two projects on the plate now, uh, one's, a, one's a financial charge capture type of project, the other is an interface clinical improvement type of effort that takes the same resources. Right. So which one right. of those gets done first? Right. Finance would say do the charging one. Of course. Clinicians are going to say give me the one that improves my clinical access, but it's the exact same resource to do both projects. And so that's where the governance needs to come in and say, okay, we want to prioritize one over the other. Right. Uh, speed to get it done. How, we, we're going to do them both. Which one happens first becomes the question. Okay. Well, you, you know, from my perspective, the sooner that you put in that, that governance structure in place, the fewer dollars that are wasted in human resources and in, in finance, that's how, I, that's how I would perceive the advantage of, of putting that governance structure together. Yeah, and I think it's uh, more prioritization than, than uh, wasting dollars, yes. resources or dollars. Because the, yes. the, the outcomes of those projects are all positive. Absolutely. Uh, they're all good projects to do. It's yes. just w which one should be done first. That's right. Uh, That's from right. the key stakeholders involved and understanding. Uh, when I say no to someone, it's because something else was more important, and that's why it, so it's not, it's not now but later. Yeah, and, uh, and that's and understood the no by everyone. Should, should have a rationale behind it because people can live with a rationale. It, it's it's when someone says no and there's no yeah. understanding of why the no is. It, it looks like there's favoritism and all that other stuff. So right. Okay. And, and another piece, I, I don't think we can wait the two to three years it's going to take to do the full integrated system uh, to get that done. There's a lot of business needs today that need to be addressed. Yes, absolutely. Um, it, it, these three are just some examples of that. Okay. There's a lot more out there. Thank you. So I think one of the things that went whizzing by was, um, uh, so the bill for this and more precisely the electronic health record integrated, integrated thing, um, 
it's not it's not a small bill, and nor is it in our plans, right? Current. It's not currently in the plan. Currently, yeah. So, um, so so we've got so so we've got a big decision to make here and at the full board. Um, and it's probably going to require more, and you know, this is a and this is an enormous amount of money. It's a big strategic impact on the whole organization. Yep. So it's probably more than a quick ten minute here you a, a quick ten minute discussion. Absolutely, yeah, we we yeah. totally agree. Yeah, so so I mean I think as we move forward, you'll 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 get some sense of that uh, and how we're currently uh, planning to incorporate it into a strategic financial mm -hmm. plan. Right. Uh, as, as Dave is mentioning, when we come back in January, he's going to talk about a sort of a sequenced process for which we'll actually get end user and stakeholder uh, uh, input on what a solution might be. We want to talk to the board about what levels of uh, uh, inject, and we see it sort of being a two-pronged inject that one uh, yeah. probably talk to you about parameters for what to uh, factor into a decision, mm -hmm. uh, cost, efficiency, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. uh, then letting the, the group, um, the, the group of stakeholders as it will lay that out, go through that effort of vetting various vendors and then to come back to you with a proposal that sort of falls within the parameters that you've set out for us and then ask for uh, a concurrence on that in keeping with the strategic financial plan and the overall uh, st strategic plan for the organization going forward. Yeah, so I'm thinking that's, this is part of the overall yep. strategic plan, financial plan calendar. Um, has to be. So with, with this uh, level um, of an investment, there's no way it couldn't be. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> any other, this big deal, any other management comments? Not now. Okay. Dave, thank you. We'll see you again. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, Dave, pull up Kaufman Hall. I'd like to uh, bring up the Kaufman Hall team. You can sit these two, and, and there's one across the way. Ellen, maybe you could sit here. Uh, to talk, you have to push the button. Uh, great segue. Um, we're happy to provide to you tonight a uh, educational session on the long-term financial planning model. Um, the, uh, the operative word is education. This is about understanding how this thing works, what it does, how it can help you as trustees to fulfill your fiduciary obligations and to look into the future and understand the uh, ramifications of decisions we might make as well as the operating performance that's required to, to balance needs and, and, and sources. So uh, I'm going to introduce Ellen Riley from Coffin Hall who's our relationship manager and nice person, and she can inter introduce the team here, okay? Good evening. Thank you very much. Uh, oops. It's on, and you could hear me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and we thank all of the trustees for including us in tonight's agenda and for all of you who are attending to learn more about this. I'm joined by my colleague, Carlos Borkas. Behind me is Michael Decamagerian. And again, to underscore, and you'll hear this theme repeatedly, this is fundamentally an education session, and it was very educational, actually, to sit through your questions over the last 30 minutes. We look forward to coming back in January and February and continuing this journey, because it, it, it will certainly begin to uh, allow you to formulate questions around the financial plan. So if you would turn, Carlos, ah, thank you. 
Yeah, I, I should point out that the um, handout we've sent around is slightly different than what is in your package. We've added a couple of slides based on review, so I'd encourage you to work from this document. Thank you. So this evening we're going to highlight a number of areas for you, and the purpose of the discussion is to lay out, and David uh, said this to you about 40 minutes ago, that this is a model. Think of this as a framework, because we'll differentiate between a tool that is the model itself and forecasting uh, versus a paradigm and a model with which we can ask very critical questions similar to what you've been asking this evening. So the paradigm is to explore, well, what does the organization look like on a historical perspective, and how do we actually characterize that viewpoint? Uh, the second is then, really fundamentally, we're telling a story through the integration of, a of an integrated strategic financial plan. And what are the components of that story? We're developing a roadmap. So think of your budget for a moment as an allocation of annual resources, operating resources. For the financial plan, it's a roadmap that gives us a trajectory. David alluded to the fact that we want to set next year's targets, uh, operating targets for that budget. What's critical? in evaluating how we set those targets. Well, what's very critical is the second point up here, which is five-year capital requirements, because there's a fundamental relationship between what we generate from our operations and what we are able to spend. The ultimate goal, as you'll begin to see, is a balance scale. So we're going to show you what that balance scale is, and that would be defined, quite frankly, by this capital position. We're going to look at our sources, of funding and our uses of funding. And we can look at this over a five-year trajectory. We also have the capability in the model to look at 10 years. What's key to that are the key operating assumptions. And we recognize that healthcare is so dynamic right now that we want a tool that allows us to be nimble to move around those operating assumptions. So for example, as we have flows throughout the year, we can ask ourselves how might the end of the year look like based on what we thought relative to budget. And then it impacts the trajectory in the future. So what we're trying to solve for is a fashion in which we can balance those sources and uses of funds, and most critically is to continue the mission and vision of the organization to serve the needs of our population. And so, very simply, we're, we're using this integrated strategic and financial plan. And we have, you have, other partners that are working with you, with you on the strategic plan. It is, as Trustee Lawrence indicated, an iterative process. We will integrate the results of that strategic plan to make sure that we do have that fundamental balance on a long-term basis. So these are the elements that we have at this juncture that we will walk you through instructively at a, at a fairly high level included the credit analysis and a preliminary indication of the capital requirements over the next five years, the balance scale of the capital position, so the sources and uses. The more you hear us in January and February, the more you'll get comfortable with the nomenclature of this financial plan. But this is all mired in and supported by financial projections. 
a tool which is most dynamic that can really move around these operating assumptions. So you'll see, again, on a preliminary basis, just to give you a sense of how numbers, is this, am I getting, I don't have anyone near me. I left my phone behind me. Ah, no, I apologize. Um, and so we'll look at the financial projections. They are preliminary, but what they will do will give you a sense of how you apply concepts and the quantification of those concepts so that you have a directional sense. What does this all mean to us at this juncture? And then we certainly want to demonstrate to you, once again, quantitatively as well as, as conceptually, what's the impact of asking certain critical questions that you will ask of us and management if we move around certain operating assumptions? What's the implication on our trajectory? How much more might we need to generate or how much less might we need to spend? All the time knowing that we have firm commitments with the county relative to our pension obligations and long-term obligations. So it's a very fine balance, but we have a wonderful tool and framework and model, I'm using somewhat of those interchangeably, that will lead us down that path. So if we can turn to the next slide, which is slide um, three, a couple comments here because I'd really like Carlos to bring us back to this. but but. One thing that I would like to uh, publicly acknowledge, we've seen your financials, you will see those historically, and we see where we are year to date. And, and you noticed it with that $14, $16 million of operating improvement, and that is the terrific progress that the organization is making along that trajectory. And so when we identify some benefits and some concerns, we want to identify that we're in a much better place today, certainly than we were 12 and 24 months ago, we still have a, a bit of challenges. And so one is that we need to actually achieve budget as a starting point uh, as, as that trajectory. So the assumptions that we're working off at this juncture are predicated upon achieving budget. Uh, the assumptions, uh, we, can, we can move around. But again, that's their starting point. What are some of the key concerns that you want to be aware of as you look at this roadmap? And one is, notwithstanding the fact that we, you will see a magnitude of order directionally of how much capital is included at this juncture, it is still limited capital access, and we know that we have a very huge appetite on an IT basis that is so critically important to our mission. So we want to develop a paradigm that gives us enhanced capital for that very fundamental reason. Uh, the second is, uh, and you can read through these, but the operating performance um, is dependent on, on governmental reimbursement. And that's a, that, that's a lever that we're not in control of. And so, again, balancing that, that's a, con a concern, but we have to manage that around our uses of, of limited resources. Um, so go ahead to the next slide. Uh, the only thing I'm going to indicate here, because I'll leave time for Carlos to cover it, is um, the this planning process. We will come back because we want to ensure that what you're seeing today directionally in terms of capital is supported by the outgrowth of that strategic plan. So uh, with that, a couple things. We talked, or I spoke briefly uh, a couple minutes ago about this balancing. So think of this as a scale where we have uses of funds, and Carlos is going to actually walk through a magnitude of order of those that includes our working capital. That's the amount we need 
just to meet our operations day-to-day -day basis, our assets minus <gasps> liabilities, our, our estimate of capital expenditures, and then our pension and our debt obligations. Those constitute our uses. On the other side of that, we have our sources of funding, the Medi-Cal waiver, the Measure A, what we generate from operations, and then an assumption about community support vis-a-vis -vis philanthropy. Those are all moving elements. Uh, and so we want to sensitize around those. So with that, let's then move to this next slide, very critical fundamental principles of financial and capital planning. We want to support growth in very critical er areas. Secondly, we have to ensure that our facilities, the brick and mortar, and the delivery of our health care is market competitive. That meets our mission and our vision. Third, and we underscore this, don't run out of cash. We need to have the wherewithal to ensure that we are paying our daily expenses to deliver on that mission and vision, and that's critical. The fourth is this established credit worthiness. Very simply, David even indicated earlier, for us to take on, for example, risk capitation, we have to establish that credit worthiness. So there's a number of ways that we can talk about credit. Let's keep that very simple at this juncture, but what that allows us is uh, <clears throat> the ability to deploy our resources on our terms for our needs. Lastly, create capital capacity. That's a very fancy word for basically saying, let's deploy those resources. If we're credit worthy, we should be able to deploy the resources where and when to effectively meet our needs. Okay, so lastly, a uh, picture tells a thousand words. This is a plot of time. Again, five years out in the future, 10 years out the future. Against, and that's on the horizontal axis. And on the vertical axis, we look at our ability to generate cash flow. That, that cash flow is our bottom line uh, plus depreciation. And so what that allows us to meet in terms of, of uh, requirements is our annual capital needs, our principal, and our working capital. So if you look at the, for example, the red line, the solid red line, We'll, we'll characterize that as saying we're just meeting survival, but it doesn't give us the opportunity to deploy those critically strategic capital requirements that we need to. So there's a slope of that trajectory. How steep that trajectory is is a function of all those moving pieces that I spoke about. Uh, similarly, what is unsustainable is if we don't generate uh, a future stream and a trajectory. And so what would that look like? Well, it's unsustainable. We don't want a circumstance. But what this model allows us to do is to ask those questions to ensure that we don't have a trajectory that, that's, that characterizes that dotted line downward. Any questions so far? I spoke quickly, but I'm hoping everybody's following this. I'm, I'm with you, but I do have a comment or two. Sure, please. Um, I think, uh, especially if you go back one page, please. Those um, principles. Those principles, I think, are things that I mean, I, I agree with them, uh, but I think these are things that probably the uh, you know you'd want the board to endorse. Because I, you know, it's like you know, don't run out of cash. It seems obvious, but that's that's an important driver. You know. 
Um, established creditworthiness is one that is perhaps debatable. Uh, but if we're going to establish creditworthiness, it implies a level of performance um, that, you know, isn't going to be there if we don't need that for some reason, if we decide we don't need that. So um, we should probably reduce those to numbers and then, if that makes sense, Madam Chairman, President, sure. Madam no, President. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. Okay. All right. Um, I have more, but I just want to make that comment there. Thank you. Yeah. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, Carlos. Great. Thank you, Ellen. So before we jump into really the framework for the five-year and really the looking to the future, it's obviously important to look at the historical performance of the organization. And there's a lot of numbers on this page, so certainly in the interest of time, we're not going to go through every individual line item. Uh, but one of the things that we certainly applaud, and it's part of the planning process, is establishing performance benchmarks. Um, and obviously that is, uh, you need to ensure that the performance benchmarks are consistent with achievable targets. And when I say performance benchmarks, really it's what, what does our operating EBITDA margin need to be in order for us to balance our uses and needs of capital um, and to meet some of the principles that were outlined in, in the prior pages as far as the planning process. Uh, I'll, I'll focus on, on two items here as far as the, um, what we have in the page. Uh, operating cash flow, and obviously this is any excess cash that's generated by the organization on an annual basis. And these dollars are in essence dollars that we have in order to reinvest in our plant, meet our uh, debt obligations and pension obligations. So if you look at what happened in 2015 and 2014, those were negative numbers. So we obviously were not generating sufficient cash flow to meet our, our ongoing requirements. And the next really key critical item is operating EBITDA margin. As we think about the future, we want to know what do we need to perform in order to meet our obligations what does that need to be in order if we need to deploy additional capital beyond sort of the initial um, estimate? Yes. It is uh, operations, operating income before depreciation and interest expense. And if you look at the uh, slide number 25, it's got the definitions of each one of these um, ratios. And it basically, operating EBITDA margin is really um, a factor of showing what the true performance of the organization is uh, if you take out the impact of depreciation and interest. Um, I like to think of it as the amount of money, I did, I'm on, I'm on, thank you, thank you for that. The amount of money that we generate after operations but before buying any capital paying any debt, okay, before we make big decisions on what to use, if we just run the organization and paid our bills and looked at the difference and said, okay, this is how much is left, that's, that's uh, the, the amount of cash flow that is generated from operations, but before buying equipment or building anything or paying any kind of debt. So it really is the, 
the truest level of looking at the organization's operational performance on a day-to-day -day business uh, without the impact of depreciation or interest. So how do we perform just doing our normal day-to-day -day operations? And uh, the other item I'll, I'll point out here is obviously the, the significant improvement between 15 performance, negative 1.4 operating EBITDA to projected budget in 2016, and that's obviously critical. Um, the, the, uh, so that's the historical, and again, we, we could spend a whole lot more time, but now in the interest of time, we'll go really to the different levers that establish the framework for the five-year uh, financial and capital plan. The first item, again, these are, please look at these numbers as placeholders at this point. Really the identification of capital requirements across the entire organization over the next five years. And you see by the different categories. Um, and certainly part of the strategic planning process, part of the, the uh, looking at the integration of IT components would obviously have an impact on this. And it's certainly critical to uh, think about capital as being able to understand what the impact to the bottom line is going to be, and obviously what's the impact to clinical and the other items uh, that are really needed from, from our patient standpoint. At this point, uh, the number, again, pr very preliminary, $193 million over the next five years. And you see how they're broken out by, by different categories. The other critical item, and, and David mentioned this, um, what we've done uh, in working with the finance department here is prepared a financial model by business unit. And so as the strategic plan is prepared and certain initiatives are deployed across different business units, we will have the ability to understand what that does to revenue expenses by business unit and obviously the capital deployed um, across each business unit. So there's a whole lot of data in this model and it's, uh, it's very flexible to allow us to do a whole lot of scenarios as the organization undergoes the strategic plan. The uh, slide number 12 outlines the different moving parts, um, or really the new, different moving parts as far as the operating assumptions within that financial model. And again, as I said, the model is very flexible, and we can set different assumptions by business unit. Right now, I'll, this is more of an example. We have the ability to understand what, it, what happens to the model from a revenue and expense standpoint. If volumes change over a year-over basis by business unit, what happens as far as changes to reimbursement? Ellen indicated that obviously one of the uh, areas of concern, really obviously we're very dependent on government funding. Uh, what happens if Medicare rates increase or decrease over the next five years? Expenses obviously are critical. What happens if our uh, annual cost of salaries increases? higher or lower, and then what happens to the rest of the organization if we deploy more or less capital. So these are really the, the moving pieces within the financial model and obviously imp have an impact on revenue, expenses, bottom line, cash flow, and then obviously the balance sheet. And these are obviously will be updated as we go through the, the strategic plan. Slide number 13 articulates put some numbers to that scale outline that Ellen um, indicated. And really, this is the balance. Um, on the left-hand side, we have uses of capital. And again, these are our placeholders at this point. But 
but it, it is illustrative as far as being able to, and the goal here is to ensure that both sides balance. On the left side, we have uses of cash, and this is over a five-year trajectory, the $193 million of capital, plus uh, making payments on our long-term debt, pension obligation, about $83.2 million, keeping enough working capital on our balance sheet to meet our day-to-day -day obligations as far as uh, paying bills. That comes up to roughly about $289 million over the five-year trajectory. On the right-hand side, sources of, of cash. We start with what was our ending balance in 2015, about $13.7 million. A rough estimate of potential community support of approximately $10 million. And really where this, is, this equation is really um, solved is at the projected operating cash flow. And it's, so we go back to that operating EBITDA margin. So as these numbers are adjusted, whether capital increases or are any of these other items change, we need to understand what is the required operating EBITDA margin in order to solve this to make sure that the left side is equal to the right side. And so you will see that, um, again, from an illustrative standpoint, in order to solve this over the next five years, at this level of capital and these, based off these assumptions, the organization would need to perform roughly in the five to six percent operating EBITDA margin. And if you see how that compares to uh, budgeted 2016, it is slightly better than budget 16. So from our point of view, obviously achieving 2016 budget is critical uh, because obviously it ensures that the the um, the level of improvement is not as steep as as if it were lower than that. Again, the other critical element is that if all of a sudden 100 or 200, 300 million dollars of capital are added, then we obviously would need to find funding for that additional uh, uses of cash. Yeah, let me jump in. So. Um, Last year when we were preparing for the budget, <clears throat> I did a very high-level exercise like this. I don't know if you recall, but I said that the organization really, in my opinion, needs to be operating at 8 to 9% EBITDA. This, what they've done here is they've loaded our current performance and put in some baseline reasonable assumptions, and it's projected the ability to run at, you know, 5 to 6. Um, <clears throat> I still believe we need to be at 8 to 9. We'll flush that out, but... You know, just adding the $100 million that Dave mentioned for the IT system is going to require a need for another $20 million over five years, five million, you know, $20 million per year. So I, I'm still thinking it's going to work out to be 8 to 9%. Now what that means is we have to do something different than the assumptions that are in this model currently, and that's, that's a big financial challenge. And, and we don't disagree with that statement. If you look at the second column over, the Moody's AA3, that is compared to obviously not uh, so much safety net organizations, but sort of more the typical non-for-profit non -for uh, health system. They operate in the 8 to 10% operating EBITDA margin. And, and, and one, of the, uh, one of the, I would say the important points related to capital is obviously understanding and ensuring what the deployment of capital does to uh, revenue and expenses. Is this an increased revenue? Does it save expenses? And obviously understanding the ROI on, on whether a capital is deployed. Correct. 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 
yeah, you, you see the different levers as far as the operating assumptions, and you see the results. But again, these numbers are placeholders at this point. Um, yes, so uh, those numbers actually <clears throat> came from us when we did our capital budget last year. Uh, we have a capital expenditure committee. We got together and asked everybody to come in with their projected needs over a period of time, and, and that's what this is. We did not put in the IT replacement project. Uh, we do have things like um, the San Leandro uh, rehab remodel, the um, Alameda Hospital kitchen project, things like that. And then on the, on, we've, we've, in the out years, we've sort of made some, some gross assumptions. But, but really, we need to go back into this um, um, in light of the strategic planning process and do a much more thorough um, um, just estimate of what our real needs are going to be. Right. We're going to re request and require the board to approve the capital plan. It's it's a big decision. You'll get plenty of information, but that's a, that's a specific responsibility of yours in the budget process. And if I could just wait on the capital plan, I, I I just have this gut feeling that it's a lot more than 193. It's a lot more than 193 plus 100 million for systems. I don't know what the answer is. I really don't, but. Something just tells me it's a much bigger number. No, nor do we, yeah, and, at this and, stage. And, and this is the time, you know, even if it's a very uncomfortable discussion, to have the discussion. Um, we agree. Because, you know, I think, you know, the, the, the face of healthcare delivery has changed and is changing dramatically, and that involves a lot of capital. Yep. <laughs> Yep. So I think that's I'm, I'm speaking to the choir, I think. Yeah, well, I, I think we, we would tend to agree with that. Uh, and, and as I was saying, so one of, one of the good things here is you'll, you'll at least see through the framework categorical representations yeah. of, of things that will be in a, uh, a strategic financial, uh, integrated strategic financial plan. So uh, obviously equipment from a capital perspective, really big IT, uh, as we've been talking earlier, facilities. And, and then there's some specific costs relative to uh, things that we'll need to do from a regulatory perspective, things that we need to do uh, um, um, just driven by, you know, some of the other sort of long-range uh, commitments we've at least telegraphed as an organization. Mm -hmm. And this is just to put them out there. So when we do um, um, align this with the strategic plan where we're making some uh, conscious uh, uh, commitments to what we think are the right things to do, these numbers will obviously change dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, but the categories probably will be the same, maybe with the addition of a few more. Uh, and then, as, as David was saying, even these numbers, um, uh, which we don't want to um, focus too much on, uh, they're, they're, they're based in a, a, a um, 
exercise that the that the organization did last year, yeah. but also with some understanding that the out years, as you can see, like uh, two big buckets of it are capital estimates for 19 and 20 that aren't categorized. So, so they're just some big sort of placeholders for what we um, uh, would expect relative to what we see in the prior years, uh, and that needs to be flushed out more. But there, there's a big, you know, there's a big sort of uh, assumption there that we would try to fill in a lot more with a plan, um, a strategic plan once we have that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, in the interest of time, just a couple of just very quick comments. Um, obviously, once the, the full plan is updated and integrated with the strategic plan, uh, we would update the baseline financial projections along with completing a number of sensitivities to really understand what is the impact on the five-year trajectory if a number of the assumptions change over the next couple of years. And, and obviously we know that that's, that's a fact. So we, we typically do a number of sensitivities here. We've uh, assumed a number of assumptions related to variability on salaries, uh, the amount of, of uh, philanthropy, <coughs> salary inflation, what happens to uh, changes in outpatient or inpatient volume, or what happens if we uh, spend additional capital. So uh, obviously we have the ability to see how that compares to the baseline and obviously think about what the items that we need to be very careful and mindful over the next five years. And that's, uh, that's really, um, the, uh, in essence, the structure of the model. And obviously, we'll come back with a whole lot more information and a lot more detail related to the assumptions that drive the model. The only thing I would add is that in your appendix, once again, uh, you do have the preliminary, very preliminary financial statements that are the granularity of what Carlos just displayed. Now, recognizing these are there for you to review so that you at least understand there's integrity behind the set of assumptions. These are going, they are preliminary, they are draft, but at least you can begin to see that there is an income statement that is generated and a balance sheet, and so that, that becomes the, the, the actual output of this process and then you'll continue when we come back to you to see this similar paradigm laid out in a step-by-step -step story for that roadmap. So um, we appreciate the opportunity to at least have this initial educational discussion uh, on behalf of management. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know. Any yes, I had a couple, oh, I had a comment too. And sure. okay, so don't, don't take this as um, as go do it, okay. But um, as, as far as the um, choice of you know, running at it for five years, mm -hmm. um, now on, on the one hand, I recognize that the longer you go, the longer you make financial projections or projections of any kind, uh, the less likely it is to come true. Um, having said that, you know, when I've worked with these kind of models, I find I find that they really ha can help you think mm -hmm. about about the future, and I think that's the value of these things. So what I wonder is, if we run it out for five years, is the business at that point at a stable point? Or is it still evolving in a way that running it out for 10 years may, may give us different answers? And so I'll just lay that out. Yeah, as it's a, a key question. We'll yeah. get into it in more detail. I mean, one of the specific things we're um, focused on as a uh, safety and hospital is that um, the waiver is being renewed for five years, but what we're hearing it is that will be the last renewal. Right. And so we then they would then have to look at the future and say, what does it look like without a waiver? Exactly. And I think that, there, you know, we may 
start to find that there, we, we come upon, you know, capital re renewal cycles farther out where you know it's going to happen. You don't know exactly how much, of course, or exactly when, but you know it's going to occur for, like, your thing. I mean, you know, is EHR going to be the same 10 years from now? Doubt it. So, so Jim, um, we have the ability, the model is set up yeah. for 10 years as well, and what it does is it allows you at least to see magnitude of order for that movement in cash flow. So we're sure. certainly so at I'll management's let, direction. I'll let you work with management on that. Um, the other ob observation I make is that one of the places, you know, especially because we are capital highly capital constrained, is one of the places where we can get into difficulty, if you will, is during the course of the year, there's a lot of variability in our cash flows. And so, um, you know, I, I just want to be mindful of that fact that we may have an annualized model mm -hmm. that says there isn't, that we don't face a problem, whereas, you know, if we look at it quarterly or monthly, we may well have, we may well have problems, so. Yeah, um, this model is not designed to do that, but when yeah. we approve the budget, we look at it month by month, and sure. I, we do internal projections, and yeah. we address but, it that way. Yeah, so I just yeah. think that, you know, some, yeah. You know, some uh, side modeling, if you will, I yeah. think might be okay. helpful. Great. Um, and I don't. Okay. Let's see. Let me just, I think I had one more point, maybe. But if I can't remember it, it's not that important. So, okay. great. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Ellen. Any thank other trusting comments? Great. Thank you. Michael, thank you. Okay. okay. So, um, if we could. Uh, thank you. Next? Yes, next. Next okay. item is uh, Alameda Health Partners. I'm going to ask uh, Brenda Taylor to come up. So we are ready to go live uh, January 1st. Um, we have a couple of uh, straightforward contracts for you to approve tonight, but we thought uh, it would be a nice time to talk about what HP is actually going to do. Uh, many, many people have contributed to the work so far, but the person who's probably done the most work on this is Brenda. So I've asked her to uh, make some comments about it. Hi, Brenda Taylor. So I'm, I'm very excited to be here after um, a couple of years uh, working on this project to be talking about what we're going to be doing when we go live. Uh, given that it has been a while and there have been uh, disparate conversations with the committees on Alameda Health Partners' purpose um, and overall objectives, I thought I would start with just a brief overview of the context. So why are we doing this? And then follow it up with the bigger part of the conversation on how are we actually going to operationalize it. Um, and that's really as a, a preface to two agreements that you have uh, coming up for approval here that are essential for our go live on January 1st. So if we move forward, oh, that would be backwards. So Alameda Health Partners, what is it? It is a new corporate entity um, that is a subsidiary of Alameda Health System that will be focused on our physician enterprise, wholly focused on our physician enterprise, I should say. Um, and this will be the, the central point of organizing uh, our contracted physicians, our uh, employed physicians, and other physician relationships. We think there are um, some unique sources of value with having this separate corporation. Um, they're really in, I've, I've got five bullets here, but they're really in two different categories. So one of them is what this allows us to do um, from an operating model standpoint. And the second one is what this allows us to do from a, a business standpoint. Um, so on the operating model, uh, this, this really does hardwire places for our physicians to be engaged and provide enhanced leadership to the organization. 
that's because they represent a, a large share of the board and because they have a uh, fixed voice. They meet weekly with the president of Alameda Health Partners, with the Operations Council, to talk about issues that are most important. So today we, we don't have any mechanism for sort of gathering that information in one place and having a clear view of what is it that the physicians think is most important for the organization. This, this does really create that. Um, on the flip side, it also creates clear uh, accountability and responsibility and management of the physician enterprise. And I'll, well, we will be starting very small. Uh, this is a startup. So we will be rolling this out with, with seven physicians who will be employed, um, looking to scale over the first year. So, no, it, it's a great question, um, and one hopefully that will become clear as we go move a little bit further. Um, but we've started the organization with a broader group of physicians who don't, who aren't necessarily members. Uh, so we've picked leaders who are both defined leaders by virtue of their role, uh, as well as leaders who are the, you know sort of default leaders amongst the physician group. And we have a represented uh, group of employed and contracted doctors who sit at the table. And they may not in the first year be the doctors who are the employed physicians um, or even in certain circumstances the contracted physicians with Alameda Health Partners. But we thought it was more important that as we build the organization we get a representative view. And so the, the doctors who are at the table um, are actually leaders who are well-respected um, and are, are helping to guide development. So does that make sense? And part of this is that it's a startup. So we, we, have, we have ways of dealing with this at the early stages that are different from how it will evolve over time once most of the relationships are organized under Alameda Health Partners. And that's pretty common for a startup to say, we need an advisory council that looks like the body we want to represent in the future, understanding that right now we have no members. <laughs> and so we have, to, we have to pick that without the benefit of the membership. Yeah, it's, it's, it will represent a bigger goal as we, or I'm sorry, a bigger benefit as we fully flesh it out than perhaps it does right now, but it sets up the framework right. as bon, er, Bonnie, great, <laughs> as Brenda is saying, um, uh, for us to be able to do that in a way that we don't have otherwise right now. And so on the flip side of that, we have, we have a business benefit too, which is that um, you know, today our doctors are, are moving through sort of disparate channels to try to solve problems and provide support. In the future, we have an organizing mechanism um, and executives really who are responsible for, for the physician enterprise and advancing those initiatives. So this we think will actually be uh, um, of great value in, in moving some of these, helping to prioritize first of all, and then moving some of these priorities forward. On the business side, so the second bucket of benefits, there are actually financial consequences for doing this. So because of the structure of this organization, we have a, a, an individual tax and provider group ID that is specific to physicians. Um, and it allows us to bill more effectively and cleanly uh, in California. And part of the challenge for us historically has been that AHS doesn't look like uh, other hospital organizations. We have the ability to employ doctors, um, and most hospital systems don't. In fact, I think we're the only one in, or one of two in California that can do that. And so we get a lot of duplicate claims. We get um, you know, denied claims and things like that, and having this separate tax ID is actually going to allow us to drop cleaner bills. So we think that this will be a big business benefit. 
it, it's going to grow over time. So our, our, our aim is to actually, and we, we, before we move contracts, we have the ability to, to assign billing differently, and I should let David talk about this. Um, yeah, the, the, the key point is that we envision that this will include right. <clears throat> billing for all of our physicians, not just the ones we employ, but right. anybody we contract with as well. We'll run the contracts through here so we can bill for everybody through this entity. What does that mean? What does that mean? So, so what, uh, actually, it's an interesting thing because it's an interesting use of the words. Going live, uh, we could have said was the case when the organization was incorporated back in October of last year. What we're saying is we're reaching a new milestone in January now of actually beginning to move the physician uh, operating model or the physician engagement model from the organization from AHS to this new entity, AHP. So the first step in that is the hiring of the seven physicians who are uh, currently employed by AHS into now being employees of AHP. The next steps will be subsequent employment of doctors who are either hired by us or contracted by us, uh, as well as uh, new contracts with providers that are currently contracted with us through that entity, because it's all going to be one stop or one uh, entity that's uniquely responsible for aligning all of those relationships. Mm -hmm. So the going live is basically the big milestone of actually now saying there will be employees who will, uh, providers here who will be employees of AHP, which up until that point does not exist. The other part of this, uh, getting to the benefit that she's talking about now is, when we have providers contracting with us, um, they um, by and large, and perhaps all, assign their uh, pro fee billing, which is a professional fee that they, they uh, generate for the services they provide, over to us. And the way that we bill now under one tax ID is we try to bill both for the facility and the provider fee, and we do that under one bill, and so we end up getting a lot of disallowances for things that if we were billing separately for the facility and then separately, so we have a separate tax ID for the provider side, it would be a cleaner process, and then we're right. able to maximize our ability to collect on those revenues in a way that we can't do right now, so. bring onboarding the other people and in, in the different mechanisms. Right. David may want to yeah, chime I think in. I'll just with, I think within a year, virtually all of the right. professional activity will be billed through this entity. Uh, it's not going to be a big bang. It's going to be more like lighting candles on a birthday cake. Yeah, that's okay. But it's going to happen this year. I, I mean, the, and there's there are some technical issues that we're still trying to solve with provider IDs and things like that. But okay. we're going to start gravitating this over. 
Uh, and a very important component of this is we want the um, physician leadership and governance to make some of these decisions. That's right. So, yeah. so your, your point is taken, and I think that's what Brenda was alluding to when she first started. She's recognizing that there has been a long um, uh, lead up to even getting to this point. Um, okay. But a lot of the work is culminating around what she's sharing today, both in the contracts and agreements that we put in place between this organization and that organization, AHP, uh, and then the physician hiring pieces. Uh, but we do expect then that there'll be a, a much more sort of uh, progressive process. That's great. And that there will be a lot of physician involvement. And I just remind the board that during the retreat, one of the things we talked about was uh, we currently operate with a, um, with a uh, contract uh, uh, leader for this uh, entity, and uh, we are in the process now of beginning the permanent placement of a leader in that organization, and that's gonna really help to uh, have the, the board of the organization and the physician leadership within the organization to move these things uh, well, more, and, more readily. Well, and the doctors that I saw listed uh, have a great deal of credibility that's in right. the organization. You're absolutely right, and certainly credibility with with this board, you know they've been they've been really good leaders and moving things forward. So that that's great that you've been able to make that big move. But great questions. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so this, just for for everyone else's benefit, is uh, exactly what uh, Trustee Lawrence was just referencing. So this is the architecture for the initial organization structure of Alameda Health Partners. Um, we have currently an uh, an interim president in place. Um, and are contemplating at this point hiring an executive director to manage the sort of operations or day-to-day -day operations, uh, much of which will actually require coordinating and working with the support functions of Alameda Health System who will be providing many of those services. So finance, um, HR, et cetera. And then we have on the right side uh, the, the leadership representation for physicians, so the operations council who you know really are the um, the, the insight for the president in, in talking about what's most important and you can see who the leaders are who are represented there. Um, ultimately, we will have, uh, we'll start, start with the seven members, but as we discussed, we, we anticipate that growing quickly. Um, having this foundational infrastructure in place has really been the sort of gatekeeper <laughs> to allowing us to open this up to, to scale it. So that discussion you're talking about can actually start once all of these pieces are in place for January 1. Um, we don't need to spend much time on this. You guys, uh, I think, have been here long enough to maybe know when this started, but it was uh, part of the strategic plan in 2012. It was incorporated in April of 2014. Um, I started working on this when I joined, and it had already at that point been in progress for a long time. Um, on the right down here at the bottom, you can see there are only a handful of things that are left for us to execute. And so we have all the member applications and they've been approved, uh, assuming that the background checks come back okay. Um, and then it's these two agreements at the top, the master services agreement and the intercompany services agreement, both of which are in your packets for approval today. So how does that work? Um, the, this, this model is meant to be just a high level representation of how we're actually going to provide the functional support services for the organization in the near term. Um, we acknowledge that this model may evolve over time as the scale of the organization changes and more and more physicians are involved and maybe even as our financial model changes with payers. Um, but at this moment in time, this is a startup. And so the goal really is budget neutrality and, and trying to you know, optimize resources that Alameda Health System provides today. So on the left, you have uh, the support functions um, at AHS. You've got the green 
um, which highlights the services that will be provided to AHP. And those are defined in the intercompany services agreement tonight. The dark green arrow is meant to represent who's the payment, and so AHP will actually be paying AHS for those services. On the right-hand side, we have what in the future, um, and starting January 1st, would be the services provided by Alameda Health Partners. So in red, that's that um, physician services will then be contracted um, and scoped through Alameda Health Partners. The dark red line represents the payment. Um, AHS will then be paying AHP for those services. And that's represented in the Master Professional Services Agreement that you guys have tonight. So I will pause there in case there are any questions on that. Um, so the next couple of pages are really just a summary of the agreements that are in your packet. And we don't need to spend probably a lot of time on those unless you have specific questions about the agreements. Um, the, the first two, this is really describing how the planning and payment will work for the Master Professional Services Agreement. And that one is a physician contract that will describe how many uh, physician FTEs and what service levels are expected from the doctors in Alameda Health Partners. It describes a planning process by which AHS and AHP will come together jointly to decide what that needs to be uh, and which physicians will be hired. Um, and this is actually new, it's a big deal uh, to have both parties at the table together. Uh, where the doctors are part of the discussion about what those resources needs are. So we're excited about that. Um, the second major bucket is that it talks about how Alameda Health Partners will be capitalized. So even though this, it looks a bit like a business unit, um, it actually, because it's a separate organization, needs to have all of the funds flows accounted for in a way that, you know, maybe San Leandro or others, uh, similar to that, um, except it needs to be described in an agreement. And so the Master Professional Services Agreement describes the methodology that will be used for paying for those services. So do, does this, in establishing this, this contract, does it preclude any of the participation in the professional review that we're talking about, the doctor, um, gosh, I... The peer review. Peer review, thank you. No. Um, peer review and all, all those things. Are those, in, in any way, does this kind of thing interfere with those processes those processes are part of the self-governing aspect of the medical staff, so it's a right. sort of an adjunct to this, but is not impacted at all by okay. this. Yeah. And Brenda, just remind me, maybe sure. you're going to get to the second page, but just remind me of a couple things. Um, so is this a, are these mutually, is it, is it a mutually exclusive arrangement? So in other words, AHS gets all of its, Okay. Um, uh, HS has the ability to go out and sign other agreements right. if necessary. Okay. Uh, HP has the ability to purchase services from non-AHS supported partners. Can a can can HP provide care to non-patient sure, to patients who are not under certain circumstances, so it's it's we've we've made provisions to allow for it. Although mm -hmm. under the <laughs> arrangement for uh, physician employment. We are looking for, for providers that are dedicated to this place. Yeah. We think right. it's really sure. important. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so there, you know, because we have academic physicians and others who do, you know, do do some other things, we've created a, a, an opportunity for physicians to apply to the board of AHP for an exclusion or an opportunity to, you know, to, to, to do a certain service. 
So that it's not the intent that that would be the regular way of operating, but it is allowed under certain circumstances. Okay. And who owns the? How is it structured legally? Remind me. Uh, is AHP a is a wholly, wholly owned, owned subsidiary of AHS. Okay. So you. So we're the sole. You're the sole member. corporate member. That's right. Yes. Well, there are yes. two classes of member. This is a sole corporate member, and then there's a class of physician members. Okay, but the class of physician members, do they, what, what's their position in the cap? Do they have a position no. in the capital no. structure? No, 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 okay. No. okay. I think it's an No, this is, uh, this is this information. Is there are going to be some contracts for yeah. approval. So the ac yeah the action item will be the master professional services agreement and the intercompany yeah. services agreement that just say it's okay to exchange capital between the two organizations. So Brenda, I don't yeah. know if this is going to come up in the next slide. So if <coughs> if it does and it's going to be answered later, is that so the seven that you that that will be the initial members? Is it like what was some of the decision making process? That is it like a prototyping? So you s use a few orthopedic, general surgery, internal medicine, so that can feed or inform how the. Uh, um, it, was, it was really that their their agreements were up at this time. It was a convenient oh, time to do these seven. Okay. Because I just assumed that the board or the council would be the early adopters, uh, that they would be, but it comes around the time that they're. This happens in time with their contract. Well, so these physicians, the first seven are employed today by AHS. Um, and so, you know, these visit, they are already committed to AHS. Um, and in certain circumstances, I think it was three of them had agreements that were employment contracts. And the employment contract stipulated that once Alameda Health Partners was up and running, they would be extended uh, membership, basically, and employment by Alameda Health Partners. And so those, those physicians are being transferred over. Um, we have had a lot of great support from the orthopedic surgeons, though. Uh, they've been very involved and engaged in the development of the organization, but also um, in being champions. So they are uh, a great first, first group to come in. If, if I was a physician and you had just a chance to catch me in the elevator, what would your elevator speech be about the uh, value proposition uh, to me as a physician here and why I should join? So that's a great question. One I think is actually evolving um, it, with, with the physician input. Um, and so just at the outset, I would say that, you know, this really is an opportunity to elevate the, the physician voice within the organization, and there are some really important things that Alameda Health Partners is going to be focused on in the first year, one uh, component of which will be the supporting development of the new compensation model um, for, for physicians. And so, you know, being part of this early really does give you a seat at the table. And so, yes, we still need to define the agenda more fully, and we need to get, a, uh, you know, joint agreement on what that is. but. Um, but once, once we've established firmly what those priorities are, I think this, this really does give you a chair. Four years into it, we haven't identified the priorities? Well, I think they've evolved, and, and rightfully so, because you know even if you go back and look at the 2012 strategic plan, the market was different. We didn't even know if Obamacare was gonna stick around. And so the, the environment in which we find ourselves now is, is different. The organization, you know, gratefully has moved forward quite significantly. And so, um, you know, the way in which we're sort of facilitating this discussion, I think, is, is a different one now, and that's a good thing. So we still need to tackle a lot of the same issues, um, and we understand that, but we've got new leadership in place now and a new way to do that. Would, 
just add to that too, two points. One, uh, I agree with what Brenda said. Uh, uh, not only has the market evolved uh, or you know the environment evolved, our own environment. 2012, there was no right. San Leandro and Alameda Hospital in AHS. And so, so opportunities right. around how we are um, uh, positioned as an organization and the types of uh, things that we are involved in have, have certainly evolved along with the ACA and a couple of other things. Um, also, the, the direct answer to your question is I would I would start with asking you what are you currently doing because I think that the value proposition is contingent on where you currently sit, right? So so if you are a uh, provider who's in private practice and you're really solo practitioner, then I'm offering you the opportunity to be a part of a multi-specialty group that's uniquely aligned with a growing and evolving uh, physician practice that also has a, uh, that is uh, generating a partnership with a medical group to do exactly what Brenda's saying around a voice. So if that's something that appeals to you, I would try to take you from that angle. Uh, if you weren't uh, already being employed and perhaps you know you didn't have a great benefit structure in your organization, then I'd talk to you about some of the benefits that we offer in addition to some of the shared governance and other opportunities as an organization. Uh, and I'd talk to you about, again, if you're a surgeon, hey, or let's say you're a critical care provider, I have this one fantastic facility that's coming online for you to provide care to patients and you care about the needs of the uh, underserved. You're going to do that in a great facility with a great staff. A lot of other things I believe that we would do, but the value proposition, uh, we talked about this a fair amount, would really sort of depend on because of the different relationships we have with providers now, where you currently are and what we're trying to bring you to, so what we have to offer. That's great. Thank you for expanding that. <laughs> Um, and, and so finally, this is the, the second agreement, uh, the intercompany services agreement, and this is the arrangement that defines the services that AHS will be providing to Alameda Health Partners, so the, the functional support services. Um, <clears throat> the, the, the highlights are here, but really this just says, you know, what will we be doing, how will we pay for it, um, describing the accounting methodology, and then the, the, the funds flow. Um, and basically it allows AHS and AHP to exchange exchange money uh, as uh, sister organizations uh, more easily. So this is the agreement that facilitates that. And the important point is both these agreements are budget neutral. Right. Okay. Anything else? Thanks, Brenda. Okay. Um, let's keep pressing here. We might be able to get through. Let me ask um, Rishay Holman and Kinsey Rickholt to come up. I mentioned earlier that um, the um, labor optimization of the nursing staff at um, Highland was one of the, the, the key initiative in the Better Two uh, project. Uh, Kinsey and Roche have been uh, the two drivers. I'm going to ask Roche to make the presentation. You just click to the right to move it. Good evening, everyone. My name is Roche Holman. I'm the Vice President for Patient Care Services here on the Highland Campus. And um, I would like to um, thank you all for this invitation to this meeting to share with you uh, the good work being done uh, here as a result of the great team collaboration between the uh, nursing division and our MedAssess partners. Um, to get our labor costs under control and to put measures in place to support sustaining those gains um, that we've made up to this point. Um, 
I want to pause and apologize to my boss for not allowing her a chance to introduce herself. So please. Thank you. Okay. All right. I hope you all can understand why I had to do that. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so we took a basically a five-step approach to uh, this project, and as you can see in the border across the top, that these five steps are really no different from the principles of lean management, the principles of you know the nursing process, the principles of um, PDCA and other performance improvement strategies. Um, you have data analysis, um, assessment, operational assessment, uh, planning, implementation, and then finally. Uh, sustainability and stewardship. <clears throat> okay, so one of the most important parts of what we did along with our MedAssets partners was the operational data analysis and assessment piece of the uh, process. Um, they probably assisted us more in this area than any other area, even though there was a large volume of work done. This is probably uh, where they spend an inordinate amount of time um, scrubbing data and pulling together the information we needed to uh, make informed decisions about the plan. Um, <clears throat> and um, the next piece here, uh, we're going to just uh, move right into the uh, key uh, achievements um, that we were able to accomplish as a result of um, getting the uh, data analysis that we needed and doing the assessments we needed in order to build strong staffing grids um, that took into account uh, clinical and non-clinical skill mix, um, that took into account mandated state ratios uh, for RNs, um, national, state, and community productivity benchmarks for nursing, as well as our uh, union contracts. Um, the several of the items listed here on this slide um, are, you know, all of them are important, but one of the main uh, game changers here was the development of the um, shift management tool. The shift management tool um, is, uh, it's, it's a tool that we use to do real-time calculations of actual HPPD versus targeted HPPDs, taking into account patient acuity, patient census, and staffing levels. Um, to date, the shift management tool has been in place on all of the inpatient units except maternal child health for about two months, and the maternal child health tool was recently put in place, and it's been in place now for about three weeks. Uh, managing productivity this close to real time is monumental change in the culture at Highland. Um, and the results have been just as monumental. Before I expound on um, the limiting conditions, I wanted to speak a little bit more about uh, the shift management tool and other achievements. Um, so I'll back up. Um, the shift management tool requires that managers look at staffing every four hours and make decisions accordingly. Uh, this is the standard at organizations who manage productivity well, particularly in nursing. 
Um, there is about an $8 million delta between the previous year's run, weight, run rate and the targeted budgets uh, in nursing for FY2016 um, that um, this shift management tool will help us to realize, hopefully. Um, other achievements include um, we established realistic staffing targets um, for each unit as part of a collaborative process that included all stakeholders. Uh, Buy-in was largely successful because people doing the work were actually included in the formulation of the plans. Uh, we aligned the efforts of nursing, payroll, finance, and human resources in order to support our efforts around productivity management. And this was huge because we had just not had that collaborative relationship between those key departments in the past. So we were elated to uh, finally be able to, to, to accomplish that. Um, our Med Assets partners conducted educational and Q&A sessions for over 60 charge nurses, managers, directors, and other staff about the project that was, um, it, was, it, was, it was a really, really great exercise in that the staff got a chance to ask questions and be a part of um, the, the work that was going on rather than the work just being brought to them and forced on them. The whys behind why they were doing or what they were doing is, is, was extremely important in the buy-in. Um, <clears throat> another major improvement was that we were able to identify a problem with midnight census capture and developed a process to maximize the opportunity for accuracy by using Sorian Financials instead of EPSI. And as, as we all know, we, we're paid based on midnight census, so accuracy uh, certainly uh, important to say the least. Okay, so going into um, limiting conditions, uh, I would say probably the most profound limiting condition right now as we manage productivity on the nursing units is um, a clinical diagnosis uh, called CRE. Um, CRE uh, stands for carbapenem resistant enterobacterase. Try saying that three times. Uh, but uh, it is a um, antibiotic resistant microbe that is wreaking havoc on the East Coast. It's not epidemic yet, but very close. And we're starting to see cases here in Northern California that um, are very concerning to us as an organization as well as the uh, regulatory bodies who we work with each day like the county and um, CDPH. And um, they have put in place some pretty demanding staffing requirements around these kinds of patients, one-to-one -one RN ratios. Um, they even go as far as to require us to have uh, a nurse's aide sit outside the patient's room to make sure that proper um, doffing and donning or PPE um, techniques are exercised, hand washing and so forth and so on. So as I said, it's a pretty significant um, pull on labor as a result. Okay, and just some other, I, I won't read through the slide, but just some other uh, limiting conditions that stand out, um, culture change and resistance to it. Uh, we all know the uh, work that goes into that. Um, and then the transition to the new tower. Um, as you all know, we will lose 38 of our inpatient beds. And um, we have some other 
major operational improvement opportunities related to nursing, care management, pharmacy, and physician workflow. And our sobering reality is that in order for this good work to continue, we must improve and become more efficient as it relates to clinical operations. Um, we must change in order to move forward successfully. Uh, I, I missed the, the limiting conditions, uh, were limiting what? I mean, I see the conditions, but limit the staffing ratio, achieving the staffing ratio that you right. want, is that what you're saying? Correct. And, and then earlier you said that it was a $4 million that putting the program in. Is, have you acquired the form? I mean, have you already um, realized the $4 million or is mm. the $4 million related to the, the old staffing model and the implementation of this one and the anticipation? of the four million? It's actually an eight to ten million dollar delta okay. and it's based on the run rate we had in the previous year, the labor run rate we had in the previous year versus the target that will be realized if we can sustain these gains that we've implemented up to and now. And you, you won't be able to sustain the gains if these limiting conditions go into effect or no, it, uh, they will impact they will impact it in some manner. They will that impact what you're it, right? I, I I anticipate that even with these limiting conditions, that we can probably capture 50% of those savings. Uh, but this will certainly be a factor in us being able to capture the entire eight to ten million dollar delta. And and your measurement of when you capture is from what point to what point? To the fiscal last week, fiscal year. This fiscal year to yes. So it's a it's an it's annualized a, figure. Yeah. Okay. So it was it's basically let's say they they've implemented as as uh, Rache was saying, uh, uh, two two months ago I think you said in one area and then mm -hmm. uh, about three weeks ago in the last area maternal <coughs> child. Uh, so when they look at the projected run rate for that for for that point forward for the rest of the year and take that, the savings, if they annualize that savings to 12 months, it will be eight to 10 million if they're able to achieve all of right. it. If, right, if you can achieve it all, and I understand, right. I mean, Correct. So th that's. So you're right, it's a big, and, and if you recall when, when David was doing his slides earlier and he was showing the better two, he said we were projecting and analyzed, I think 16 million, and a big part of that was this eight million or so in this area. Mm -hmm. this, was a, this is a part you're hearing about now. So all of that is, projected savings of, uh, that are contingent on our ability to execute on those cost management initiatives that we're, we're putting in place, and this is a, a major part of it. Uh, okay, and, and I suppose, David, this goes back to, I think, our last finance meeting when you did these projections and I said, no way, you know, is, is because of the things that we can't anticipate, like this new disease that comes down that changes the stuff. You know, it's very hard to, but I get what it is you're trying to do. So, okay, thank you. So how does this kind of um, fit with the fact that we are getting lean and mean over here and doing the four-hour assessment and then the registry users going up? So is there any, like, you know, connection to that? Well, I'm, I'm very happy and, and proud to tell you that our registry use is down by more than 50%, actually. We went from, um, we had 42 RN travelers in-house back in March, and we're down to 16 today. So we're doing uh, tremendously well in that regard. Were you, uh, sorry, I th thank you for saying that. Were you, were you talking about at other sites like San Leandro, or were you talking here at Highland? Here in Highland. 
Oh, okay, cool. So yeah, yeah, it's actually it's actually been a different experience. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and and now all of these things are are we can we can manage them. We can manage them even with the CRE population. There, it's not just about staffing to control this. This is about good infection control techniques, good hand washing, all of which we have much room for improvement. So that will be a part of our focus as well. Um, but all of these things are, are changeable. We, we can change these things, and it's just developing that I can mindset. You know, my, uh, I, I, there's this old saying, he who says I can and he who says I can are usually both correct. Uh, so I, I, I have no doubt that with, you know, continued coaching, assistance from our MedAssets partners, um, with the leadership within this organization taking on the responsibilities of managing this tool, managing the staff to uh, use the tool to make decisions, I have no doubt that we can achieve what we want to achieve. If I just follow up a little bit, the four-hour standard is really good and impressive. If you find or a unit finds we're overstaffed or understaffed, what are the tools that are available to make the adjustment? So with the shift management tool that I've been referring to, um, that's exactly what they'll use along with the staffing grids. What's in it? I mean, do, okay. do you, do you, do you okay. send people home? Are you able right. to replace right. them in a right. unit that's understaffed? Right. Do you right. call, you know, what, are, what okay. happens is the question. I understand question. the nature of your question now. So the shift management tool has loaded into it the staffing grids based on every level of the census, from one patient up to the maximum amount of patients that can be in that unit. And then it assigns, based on projections, how many RNs, how many CNAs, how many uh, medical clerks, and so forth and so on, that you can have when you're at that level or at that census. Once the nurse goes in or the manager goes in, they look at that, they enter what the actual staffing is, and then it gives a delta, positive or negative variance, and so then. We're almost there. My question is, what happens when they get that result? Okay, I have to get to, I'm, I'm getting okay. there. <laughs> it's a long wind up before the picture. So once they examine what that delta is, uh, depending on, um, you know, seniority, so forth and so on, we look at all of that when we say, okay, we have too many RNs. Uh, we find the person who is uh, due to be flexed off, we send them home. Uh, or we make up for it with the oncoming shift. Rather than have seven nurses come in, we only need five, we call them and cancel two of them. So that's how decision, that's why we do it every four hours so that we can have a firm grasp on and that. And then going the other way, if you have more census, where do you draw from the additional help you need? If you leave me your phone number, I'll call you. No, <laughs> no, but it, oftentimes we are we we're 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 left short, and we just have to we we have to do the best we can. If we have SANS employees or, or uh, services necessary employees who are willing to come in, we um, we we call them and have them come in. But um, in most instances, um, we just we just make do with what we have, which makes for good productivity, <laughs> not, not good attitudes, but good productivity. Okay, any further questions before we move on? Okay. 
All right, so um, I know we're, we're, we're running short on time, so I'll just quickly run through. But the main thing that I want to uh, bring out about this slide is that once the work begins, just as this, um, as this slide indicates here, the diagram on the slide indicates that it's cyclic and it continues. There is no start and end point. This is something that in order to move into the future successfully, we're going to have to sustain the gains. Okay, so um, one last piece that I want to quickly expound upon is um, to the trustee's uh, previous question. This just, this algorithm speaks to the expectations around how staffing is discussed and with whom it's discussed. Um, in the past, the staffing office would make decisions about staffing. These are non-clinical people who are not on the units. They would make decisions about staffing call the units and say, this is the staffing you get. They might know the picture and they might not. Um, and so we reverse the process. The process should be the managers and or charge nurses on the unit look at the tool, make decisions about staffing. They speak with the nursing supervisor who has more of a global picture. So because we don't want to be sending nurses home on one unit when another unit's short. So the nursing supervisor has that global picture of what's going on in the house so staff can be reallocated to other areas if they need to do so. And once the decision is made about staffing, that staffing is documented and given to the staffing office for them to execute flexing people off to go home, calling people in early, sending people home early. What, all of the execution happens in the staffing office where it should happen. But the decisions about that execution are made by the managers and the nursing supervisors who should be making that decision. And take down measurement, this is all computerized now? Um, the, there's a measurement tool that it, it's a spreadsheet that they fill out. Yeah. Spreadsheet. Yeah. Okay. All right. And um, this slide just speaks to the, um, if you look in the 12-month baseline column, it's the second column from the left. It speaks to the run rates in the previous year and um, at the time that our work started. And we are less than three months into the work that we've been doing. And as you can see, the units of service in each unit has significantly decreased except for the last three. Um, obstetrics, we have limitations uh, as far as the equipment that we have in the old building. This will be remedied. Uh, once we move into the new building, so we should see that those those units of service move within to range um, Our telemetry unit we have most of our sitter patients um, Are concentrated on this unit and this will probably be an ongoing issue because you know these patients are typically um, our alcohol withdrawal patients um, psychiatric patients and uh, patients who need direct observation around the clock. Um, and then the last uh, unit is the step-down unit. And this is where we try and cohort all of the CRE patients. Rather than have this problem all over the house, we really try and cohort these patients into one area so that um, our efforts can be focused and, um, and effective. So. With that said, um, our next steps uh, have everything to do with just sustaining the gain. Um, we'll continue to do uh, education for the staff and management teams. 
Um, we have some work to do in terms of um, when we move into the new building, we have to right size the grids to match the, the reduction in beds, uh, but that work has already started. And um, that brings me to the end of this presentation. And I just want to publicly thank um, Kenzie and David. Uh, I went to them one year ago and I said, we have to have a tool. If we're expected to manage productivity on this campus, we have to have a tool to do so. And I woke up the next day and someone from Ed Assets was literally in my bedroom saying, let's go to work. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's how swiftly they, they, they answered um, the request. And our Med Assets partners have just been fantastic, just been absolutely fantastic. Um, in fact, I thought William Bowen, my, my Med Assets partner, would be sitting next to me, but I want to publicly acknowledge him and his good work. So thank you. Uh, any, any additional questions? Um, thank you very much. And um, it sounds like there's still work to do. Absolutely. Would you mind coming back in six months or whatever might be appropriate and let and uh, tell us the good news that you've got it all done? I'd be happy to. Great. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And any sure. other sure. trustee? Yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank Great you. work. Okay. Appreciate it. All right. Um, so I know. So anyone who's here for the audit committee meeting, um, I, my apologies, we will get to that in time. I note that the next thing on the agenda is the um, retrospective of rehab care. Um, given the late hour, given that we do have some substantive stuff to um, do, I'd like to defer the consideration of that to a later date. That is not to say that this is unimportant. In fact, it's incredibly important. Um, particularly given um, what I was reading in the report and the impending move to San Leandro Hospital. So, um, but I would like to uh, defer that to a later date if, unless trustees object. Nope, okay, great. Then Thanks. let's do that and let's move right on to tab number five. Now, um, I think there are some that we may just be able to, I, I, I do believe that we should spend some time talking about tab item A, but um, the other items, B, C, D, E, and F, do any of the trustees want to speak specifically, discuss those specifically? Okay, then I would move that, um, I would move that we uh, consider tab 5, B, C, D, E, and F. Do I have a second on that? I second. Okay, thank you. Any discussion on those items? No. Okay. I'm sorry, I have to go back into this. Oh, wait. Sure. So we're talking about the contracts with Alameda Health Partners, the professional services agreement, the contract renewal with Alameda County Sheriff's Office, the contract extension with RADCARE of California to provide professional diagnostic imaging services, uh, the contract extension with the Regents of the University of California, UCSF, to provide urology call coverage, 
at Highland Hospital, and the contract extension was Sutter East Bay Medical Foundation to provide professional and consultation hospitalist services at San Leandro. Um, the one thing that we're not including in that group is the um, Alameda County Permanent Agreement. Okay. okay. Thank you. So that was, mm -hmm. okay, so any other discussion or questions? Okay, all in favor, aye. Aye. Opposed? Abstentions? Okay. Susanna, did you get that? Okay, thank you. All right. Now, with respect to um, uh, Brent yeah. Taylor, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, uh. Okay. Now, with respect to the um, uh, permanent agreement. Right. So, the, the latest is uh, there's an indication from the county that there's a desire to just simply extend the uh, interim agreement for a period of months while we complete the uh, governance review and the financial planning process. Um, so I think at this point it would be appropriate for the board to provide management with the authority to extend the interim agreement if and when the county uh, expresses a formal desire to do so. Okay. Dovaki, do you have any comments? Uh, yeah. Uh, let me see. Uh, so so we've, we're in continued dialogue with the county sort of to to uh, further uh, flesh out David's point, uh, we have a, uh, a administrative discussion with the auditors and with the uh, the CAO's office uh, scheduled for next week uh, to to continue to deal uh, to continue to delve into the relative aspects of the agreement and the goals of the agreement. Uh, um, 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 so that we can start to track towards a, a moving this draft, what's in the currently draft uh, form, to a permanent agreement. Um, so uh, we're just bringing this to you now, just so you know what's going on with it. I, I regret actually that I didn't catch it. This is a part of a, an approval uh, item here because I don't I don't think we intended for it to be at this point. Understanding well. Understanding that, you know, in order to move it forward now, uh, to, uh, uh, consistent with the deadline, that it needed to be on this path. But we have been in discussions with them about extending the interim agreement, as, as David alluded. Uh, and that's that's where we are right now. Um, um, the point I've shared with some of you is that the, the agreement will expire, uh, the current agreement. Uh, will expire before the board next meets again in this committee. Uh, the board meets again next week, I should say, and, and then before that, the following meeting, which will be in January, the agreement expires in mid-December. So so uh, we're working with the county administration to then have the Board of Supervisors uh, uh, extend the interim agreement that will be concurrent with the administrative discussions I just mentioned and then the continuation of the shared governance discussions that are happening between the Board of Supervisors and the Board of Trustees, uh, all sort of coalescing around some uh, agreed upon approach to this uh, establishment of a permanent agreement in early next year. So roughly late January, we're targeting a uh, to be scheduled tentative um, uh, meeting, joint meeting between the Board of Supervisors and the Board of Trustees to specifically deal with this item. The other item is um, the uh, FQHC designation. That was really the driver for this meeting. Um, uh, so we're still working on that piece. We're waiting on some information from the federal government. But with respect to this, um, uh, uh, we are we are hoping now to coalesce around a um, uh, the terms of a permanent agreement at that point. So, I, I would I would not want to go too far into what those discussions might be because I think there's some uh, foundational uh, uh, 
understandings that will come from our meeting next week, but to the extent it is useful, uh, uh, Trustee Lujanani, um, uh, for those for the trustees who've had a chance to look at it, at least the draft agreement or recall the terms of the draft agreement that David has shared in prior meetings, um, if there are aspects of it that the board would like to uh, uh, inform us of areas of concern, then I would certainly uh, welcome those so that then we can make sure that they are articulated when we do um, uh, go further with our discussions, and certainly I know that they will uh, go forward in discussions between this board and the board of trust uh, supervisors in those in those settings as well. Okay, um, so let me pose a couple of things here. Um, with respect to the extension authority, you know, the the extension of the interim of the interim agreement mm -hmm. um, by a couple of by a couple of months. Um, and there, there, there's two choices here. We could either you know just um, Recommend to the f to the board of trustees that um, you know management has the authority to extend that, or we could um, uh, you know defer that to the uh, to the executive committee, right? Which could which could uh, I think meet fairly nimbly in in December. And, uh, I don't think that there's a need for that. I think we can just uh, because nothing has changed. So right. right. The only only thing's changing is the date. We'd be moving right. the date out. Yeah. The date. Uh, so I think that that we can give the authority. I think the board needs to next week needs yeah. to be the people yeah. to be able to say that. Correct. Um, right. But the finance committee can give the you know, a recommendation. Okay. I don't think we need to have anything formal to. Well, so why don't okay? So why don't we do, well? So we'll then. Um, I will. I will move. That we um, uh, recommend that the Board of Trustees grant management the authority to extend the expiration date only of the interim agreement, mm -hmm. um, no more than six months. Right. But I think um, that's more than within the range of what we're trying okay. to achieve. So that's fine. Yes. Yeah. Well, not. So, all right. So I will make that motion, and then we can talk more about other stuff. But I'll make that motion if there's a second. Second. All in favor? Aye. Okay, aye. So that motion was, um, and if you, Suzanne, if you want to discuss with me afterwards, make sure that we got Verbiage. the motion done correctly. Thank you. Um, the, um, a couple of other things, because I think, you know, there, there may be a lot of um, back and forth on this, I would, um, I think this is another thing that the full board would need to consider, but um, we may want to consider having an ad hoc committee to um, assist management in thinking through the um, through that. And I see a trustee shaking her head. Yeah, I, I, I think that if you start getting into mm -hmm. the weeds of this, mm -hmm. that that's not the board's authority. I think that's staff's authority. And so while I appreciate, mm -hmm. I think I think Del Vecchio's position about what are the major things that the board philosophically mm -hmm. would like to have in an agreement, I think that's sufficient. And then, and then that's that's our responsibility to get the the what we would like philosophically, and then it's up to I think the staff to sit down mm -hmm. and work out those details. I think okay. the more the board gets involved in the nitty-gritty, yeah. the more it gets I agree. confused. Any other trustee comments? I agree. Okay. Then what I would do as you're thinking about when we extend this 
um, <laughs> uh, when we extend the agreement or the, the interim agreement until, you might want to just, you know, take into account the calendar of the committee and board meetings in, in January and February. Agreed. Um, I think what we don't want to do is, you know, end up with, you know, a situation where it's, you know, everything is at the last minute and we have to agree to it kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I think that's where we've tripped up in the past. I, I, your point is taken. I, I do recognize that uh, we, as, as the, um, the weeks have uh, uh, proceeded here, that we are getting to a point where uh, January will be here in no time and uh, we will certainly continue to move the dialogue forward. A lot of work has been done already, but right. to the extent that you give us guidance, uh, uh, which we, you know, will try to execute on as we, as we deliver on that, uh, yeah. if we, if we run into roadblocks uh, and we think that, you know, there's some, some need for yep. uh, further dialogue, then we, we will want to be sensitive to that and, and, and ask your flexibility on that as well, if there is a need to kind of. But I'm just thinking, yeah, I was thinking like the next finance committee meeting, for example, is January 19th. Right. So you're saying, you know, extend the, well, it's not, so, you know, then the one after that is February 16th. So, you know, there's these one month gaps and there's posting requirements, all this stuff. So exactly. You, you don't, you know, if you just be cognizant of that as you, as you set a date that. Yeah. yeah. But it's perfectly legitimate for yeah. the CEO to send out a memo to the board to say, we're, we're looking at this new county agreement. Are there major things that you sure. want us to consider in that agreement? And if we're your, yes, and, sorry. And mm -hmm. We have an opportunity to give input, and those who have some strong feelings can give, give that input to you, not to, to the board, right. but to you, mm -hmm. or else we violate. They can give that input to you, and then you can do whatever it is you want with it. Okay, and to the extent that if you if you feel that you know all sort of flares are going up and you need to call a meeting, uh, yeah. then you know we would probably we do that. But we can always do that. Yeah. Right. I'm just right. again sensitive to you know this was before time you arrived line. and. Um, it was a difficult time for all, so I just want to avoid that. Yeah. Well, well, I think I think. All of us would. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so when I say that, I mean the, yeah. the county as well. So we, we will be sensitive to that. Thank you. All right. Well, okay. That said, so um, do trustees have comments or want to offer management at this point with respect to the agreement as it's currently structured? Well, I think if we're taking this to the whole board, that it's appropriate that the whole board weighs in instead of the finance committee. I agree. And right. So I would just hold that agenda topic until until next week okay and, and ask the whole board to weigh in the whole board and you may if you send something out in the mail you may be able to get input and just reflect here's what here's what i heard via online okay um you know does anybody have an issue that's or did i miss anything i mean you, there's a lot of ways that you can approach it that would that's just one way that might be more faster okay i'm okay with that Sounds good to me. All right. I have six points. I will share them all with you by email. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Okay. Um, Susanna, any requests for public comment? None received. Okay. Any other trustee comments? Okay. Um, motion to adjourn. I move. Second. All in favor? Aye. Okay. <laughs> Adjourned.